Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist. So glad you could join us here on Shovel Lake Public Radio. We've got a great show for you planned today. Broadcasting live from Leadville, Colorado, 10,000 feet, you know, here we are. And we are the fourth fastest and largest growing. Wait, fourth largest and fastest growing? I'm not really sure. We're we're, the, we're fourth in the north. We're fourth in the mid... Uh, I'm just copying people. We're fourth for podcasts on Nordic skis-related topics in all of Lake County. That's what I'm being told. Okay, the metrics are out. Uh, but, but anyway, if you are listening to this show, you're one of a really select few group of crazy individuals who think that Nordic skiing is fun and that we have okay takes on the sport and endurance training in general. Uh, but but yeah, you're here. You're part of Grip Wax Nation. That's great. And unlike other shows that have gotten too big and out of control and, and see themselves as being on an uh, unjustified pedestal in this intellectual space, you can be a part of cedarskier.com and the Cedar Skier podcast. All you got to do is email us at cedarskier at gmail.com. That's all lowercase S-E-D-E-R-S-K-I-E-R. Dot com. I mean, no, <laughs> back up, back it up. Okay, rewind that. S-E-D-E-R-S-K-I-E-R at gmail.com. That's cedarskier at gmail.com. Send us an email. We take the four C's. Questions, comments, concerns, complaints. We'll read it on the air if you want. If you want a moniker, you want you want to have a little nickname, send it to us. We can, we'll identify you that way. We know that it's a risk both to your job, your family, your maybe even national security to be listening to this show right now. So we'll we'll work with you. If you have a great idea, we'd love to read it on the air. And speaking of great ideas, we've got a lot of great ideas that are going to be discussed on this show. All about Nordic skiing, all about running. It's track season. Jakob Ingebretsen just shattered the two-mile world record. <laughs> it's just crazy. There's there's too much to summarize even. And, and as you know, if you've been listening to the show, we... We tend to promise a lot and then not really come through on those promises, so I've actually decided to just skip the first one minute of the show where I say what I'm going to talk about, and um, we'll just start talking about stuff, and then we'll see what we ended up talking about at the end, because, yeah, it gets pretty defeating, you know, when I say, here, we're going to talk about these 10 things, and I get to three of them. I, I don't need that, and neither do you. You don't need to be let down, so let's hop right into it. In the show, first things first. Let's talk a little bit of running. Um, well, actually, give you a little bit of update. I was at the GoPro Mountain Games in Vail the last four days. Drove down on Thursday in Enoch, the Sprinter van. Enoch still not dying. Enoch is for sale. I, I want to let that. We'll get that on the airwaves to the twenty-five people listening to us. Um, if you are interested in a two thousand five T one N Sprinter van, that is spotless but a little bit of a treehouse on wheels lots of potential but we don't have like a diesel heater okay we're not we're not rich and we're not smart we're neither of those things treehouse on wheels enoch rhinoplast covering everywhere no rust 336,000 miles on the car has about 180,000 uh, miles on the engine i put in some good work on it I'm selling it right now for $17,900, but I will consider a different offer. So if you've got something and you want to live the dream, you can drive the only vehicle that's ever had the United States Ski Pole sponsor on it. And I even have a small sticker on the driver's door that has my name on it. So you can show people across the country as you travel to cross-country ski races and say, look, this vehicle was owned by Ryan Cedarquist. Do you know who Ryan Cedarquist is? Cedar Skier Podcast. Anyway, I digress. Enoch and I, we went to the mountain games 
and it's just a great outdoor celebration. If you've never been to Colorado and you're an outdoor sports lover, might I recommend that you come over the mountain games? Been going for this was the 21st year that the mountain games have been happening. Uh, they haven't always had all the events that they currently have, from what I've been told. Obviously, I haven't really been closely following it other than the last few years. But basically, you've got world class pros versus Joes in the following events kayaking, freestyle kayaking, stand up paddleboard, rafting, trail running mountain biking, road bike time trialing, frisbee golf, fly fishing. Um, I know I'm leaving a gazillion. Oh, rock climbing, uh, slack lining. They have all these things going on at all these different little venues in Vail. A few things are offsite as well. And um, you can walk around Vail and check out all of these cool sponsored vendors, get a bunch of free swag, stuff like that. And then just as you're kind of walking through, enjoying the mountain backdrops, you know, take in a contest, watch the kayak freestyles by the bridge, um, watch the trail runners go off, watch the climbers. And there's just kind of always something to look at. Like, like it's a, it's a great way. It's kind of like the the people watching and, um, you know, product buying that a street fair gives you plus just a gazillion sports to watch. And then as a competitor, Obviously, you can go and just make this your little Olympics, and that's really kind of what it feels like. You kind of feel like it's a old school like Athens Olympics, you know, because you have some of the best in the world, and then you just also have locals who are dedicated, and they might sign up for like multiple events. Like there have been people who've done you know four, five, six, seven events at a single Mountain Games, and and across disciplines too. Um, it's, it's just a, this crazy four day, uh, shenanigans celebration. It's amazing. And it's, it's a absolute dream for a sports writer because I mean, the stories are unlimited. Um, you don't even have to watch a single race as a journalist. You can just go up to people and ask, ask them, you know, how did the race go? But also like, what's your story? Why are you here? And I mean, it's just incredible. It's a goldmine for things. Um, so I was busy. I'd, I'd wake up in the morning and, go for my run. I uh, usually I tried to go to Vail and actually do some some trail running out there because I'm hoping I can run in the Vail uphill race on July 1st. We'll see. And uh so I'm kind of doing a little bit of recon in the morning and all that. And then I hop in the stream, get a little ice bath. I can handle it for about 45 seconds. Change and start walking around, covering events, doing my thing, finding a little coffee shop to punch up my stories and then um leave in the evening, get some photos uploaded. I was out lifting weights because anytime I get over there, I try to use my gym membership that, you know, the health benefit for my company and everything. And so I was doing some lifting and that's been going better. Uh, but getting, getting back to the office way too late and trying to watch the NBA finals or the NCAA track and field championships at like 9 45 PM and then sleeping in the van and doing it all over again. But, but it's been great. It's been fun. And I wanted to kick off the show kind of just first of all, again, pitching this mountain games like this is what citizens racing this. This is what it's all about. This is actually kind of the best of both worlds in terms of citizen meets elite and just what it should look like. The reason I say that is I think there is a segment of us who compete in sports who we really genuinely want to or maybe are disillusioned and consider ourselves a part of the elite sports community. 
<laughs> and if you are laughing to yourself because you you may think if you know me that I would fit the latter category there it's somewhat true you know I think I definitely I kind of have that boyhood imagination it's still alive the fire is burning in terms of considering myself like still an elite athlete I just don't think it's ever going to go away and it's 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 literally the same thing that was present when I go out in the backyard and pretend to be John Elway, I'm pretty much just doing that now. I mean, I'm kind of pretending to be a different athlete, I guess. When I ride my gravel bike, though, I I, I pretend that I'm basically a world-class UCI guy. When I'm roller skiing, I like to pretend that I'm, uh, uh, you know, email person, stuff like that. And so that is alive. And when you go to a competition, it's somewhat deflating when you realize just how non-pro you really are. You go to a competition and there's a spray-painted line for the starting line and the organizers aren't even organized and, you know, the gun goes off and the course isn't well marked and, and all those little things that can kind of bother you. Maybe you cross the finish line and and it just doesn't even matter, you know. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a certain charm to races like that as well, and on this podcast, I have praised the old school races like that. In fact, there used to be, the the Latigalopit was so charming for that reason, you know, like the spray painted line and everything, and and look, you're going to pay 15 bucks or whatever, but you get to do a race, so don't don't hear me, I'm not obviously advocating for like every race has to have the Berkey feel. But that's because the Berkey has a ton of negativity, and you know we gotta make a whole show about that. I don't, I don't need to pay two hundred fifty bucks. I shouldn't have to pay two hundred fifty bucks to sign up for a race, but it is fun sometimes to get the pro elite treatment. The Mountain Games kind of gives you a little bit of both because, unlike the Berkey, you don't have to park in like gypsum and get shuttled to Vale with four thousand other people and feel kind of like your cattle as you get herded up to wave 25 you know and yes you get to race with the elites no you don't okay that's a joke the mountain games you can park right in the parking lot you can warm up next to joe gray and then you can line up next to him in the trail run race you know and try to keep up with him if you want i don't care and and so you are right there but you also you've got the sponsor beams around the finish line you've got a really well marked course you've got um, an am- amazing MCs that are pumping up the crowd and pumping you up and talking about the race as it's happening and um, y- you know you, you it does have a little bit of this like outdoor summer Olympics feel at all the different spots. I I have personally never competed at one of these. It's almost actually too much for me. It almost makes me nervous. Even if I'm like not competing, I'm like oh gosh, if I was racing this. I'd have to be using those porta potties, which there's plenty of porta potties placed at just the right spots too. Just a side note, you know, like they do everything right from a logistical standpoint. They treat you well, and then they've got this this great thing where they are bringing in world class athletes, and they've got random people, and they've got locals, and it's not too much. You know, even for me, I could park Enoch at a parking structure, not feel like I'm gonna get a ticket. You know, they took care of even that stuff. Oh, here's a cone. Here you go. You're like you can park here. Yep, this is for you. You know, and it's small enough where you, you, yeah, again, you aren't feeling like your race doesn't have 40,000 people in it. It's got like 200. It's just everything about it. I honestly, I was thinking about this the other day. I hope the mountain games doesn't change too much. Like one of the worst things that would ha- could happen to it is if it all of a sudden got like $5 million and it started 
bringing in some really uh, either a bunch of more athletes or just kind of attracting a monstrous crowd. Like it's just kind of the right size. I, I guess I shouldn't say elite athletes. It's always cool when more elite athletes come because then it's just more exciting. So if they were to get a big pot of money, like that's where I, it'd be cool if they spent it. It's like instead of just five world-class mountain bikers, let's have like 20 here. Yeah, that'd be kind of sweet. But I like how too they're they're racing for pride. There there is significant prize money on the line. I don't I don't know how that happens. Like I don't know if they've got like who's that one um the the group in Lord of the Rings, the dwarves who have like all the gold. Like I don't know if maybe the Vale Valley Foundation just has like one of those sitting somewhere. You know, they can just Yes, you won the twelve and under stand up paddleboard relay race. Here's twelve grand. It's not that crazy, but you know what I mean? Like anyway. All those things are sweet. So I love the mountain games. One of these years I'm going to try it. I think a great story actually would be for me to try to, instead of like trying to go crazy and covering a bunch of stories like I usually try and do or have done the last two years, I would like to make it my mission to compete in as many events as possible over the four days and then write about that. Um, It sounds kind of you know up my alley in terms of the endurance fitness aspect of it an adventure side and a good little writing piece it's very self-centered which i'm good at you know just focusing on me um and but also i would be a little bit scared i think it would honestly it would test me quite a bit to do like the kayak the gore four challenge like any of that stuff um so i was thinking about that too it's like oh would that be worth it what if i like hit my head or something bad happens uh don't want to have that go wrong. But anyway, you know, that was an idea that came into my head as I was covering the GoPro games. Now, I got an email. This will launch us into our first topic here from Mike. Mike is a listener. Um, he's He joins, his moniker is now Mike. Um, Mike is a local, and he also reads The Veil Daily. So it's very fun. Whenever I get input from Mike, I, I know I have to listen. Like He's one of those guys that... I feel like if he's happy with the coverage, I'm probably doing an okay job. You know, he knows his stuff. He knows what the people want kind of a thing. Um, That's my wife back in the background ripping up an email from a listener, if you were wondering what that rapper sound was. Anyway, Mike sent me uh, a message when I was at the GoPro games one of the days and uh, encouraging me uh, as I start season four, but also notifying me of a crazy finish to a state high school league track meet so this is illinois 3a the mile and this kid basically goes from 12th place to first on the final lap runs a 54 second last lap wins in a 409 410 something like that um and and so i watched this thing and you know the title is just like crazy how did this kid come back it's unbelievable and uh, I, I wrote back to Mike, as I do, all of my emails. I'm always writing back, right? Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, unlike FasterSkier.com, we will answer your emails. We'll even read them on the air. But we'll answer them for sure. I have a few emails I still need to get to and read on the air. Apologize for those of you. Sometimes I don't always know if they want them read on the air. And, and I'm like, is this for just me? Do you want this for the general Pitchfork Nation? What are you trying to... What is your mission here? Let me help you accomplish it. Sometimes I don't really know, but... Anyway, cedarskier.gmail.com, let us know your thoughts. So Mike sends me this YouTube video. I'm thrilled because I'm sitting there. It's late at night. I'm watching the finals. I've got this, you know, 180-ounce bowl of oatmeal and cereal mixed together with yogurt, and I'm just enjoying myself. And it's not even an exaggeration, really. It's an embarrassment. Um, And I, I'm thinking, okay, is it acceptable 
for this kid to be doing this. And what I mean by acceptable is like the code of running ethics, you know, the if you don't, if you're not collapsing at the end, you've sacrificed the gift, Steve Prefontaine, the whole gamut, you know, where does this kid fall here? This seems like one of the seven deadly sins if you are unleashing a 54 second quarter mile to win a state title. And and he really is dawdling around in 12th place. He's he's so far out of it. And to top it all off, the kid who he passes in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 meters, that kid leads wire to wire and not at a slow pace. I mean, he is out a beautiful runner, beautiful stride. He takes it out hard. He's leading the entire way. Uh, he's on his way to victory. He is cruising to victory. He is a, a well-earned victory. And here comes this joker who's been like maybe possibly went to bed the night before and thought, I'm the best runner in this field. I have the best kick. I'm the defending cross-country state champion. I, I'm an 800-meter specialist. All those things are true, by the way. I, I had to Google Aiden. His name is uh, the guy who won. Aiden um, Band- Bandakwala. I think I'm probably saying that wrong. Bandakwala. Aiden. We'll just call him Aiden. He's all those things. He probably went to bed at night and was like, I am going to give him a show that they'll never forget. Well, he did that, but it, it was a little reckless, first of all. Like if you if you are the best, which he he kind of is, if he's he's a junior in high school, but he won the state cross country title. He's known as an eight hundred guy. I mean, he's got strength, he's got speed, he's perfect, fluid, graceful, beautiful runner. This guy's a stud. What are you doing in twelfth place with two hundred and forty yards to go? I mean, you you he could have at least sat in the front of the chase peloton. He didn't do that. It was just kind of weird. So there's my little rant on this. Is like. Um, I find these videos to be cool. If, if this kid would have been coming into this race as like a 420 miler and he does this totally different, totally different. That's like kind of circa Glenn Ellingson back in 2011 when he won the two mile or whatever year it was in Minnesota, you know, no one had him on the radar. He PRs by 18 seconds or something insane. And runs 916 and dives across the line and finishes in this wild last, I think he ran his last lap in 59 seconds. But for him, it was just like, he is simultaneously realizing a dream and realizing his ability. This kid, though, does not have that excuse. He's the state cross-country champion, and he's a a phenomenal middle distance runner. Like, we know you're going to be good at this mile. So to me, it tarnished a little bit the phenomenal and amazingness of this event, but that's, that's just me. Some people I think might go, nah, it's stupid. You're looking too far into it, but we got to fill the airwaves too. So that's one thing. Mike also brought up this idea. He goes in his email, I'll read this. Um, let me see, just scanning over. He goes, something you'll appreciate. A trivia tidbit, which I know you'll appreciate. And I complained endlessly about long before you, he writes in parentheses, Illinois, 2021 population, 12.7 million. Three classes for track and field, only since 09. Okay, so I think it was two classes until 09, I'm assuming is what he's saying. Pretty sure Colorado was running at least four divisions since I moved here, which was in the 90s, uh, early 90s. Combine Minnesota, Wisconsin, Colorado, or Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Colorado, Minnesota, whatever, and run three divisions. Then you can say you qualified for state. Um, Yeah. No, I mean... This is this brings up actually a column I wrote on cedarskier.com. I don't think I've read it on the air, thought about reading it. Uh, it's about the move back to having two classes in high school. 
And I've even wondered if this is something that maybe we should go back to having just one class. This is cedarskier.com. The title is Uphill Both Ways from April 3rd. Why more than ever, it's time to go back to having two classes for high school state tournaments. I know I'm on the air. I'm, I'm live. I'm making a quick program decision. Ajay's looking at me like, why? Wh- I thought we weren't going to read this. I'm going to read it. Okay, here we go. Remember the good old days? You know, when you could go to the ice cream parlor with a nickel and people said, Mr. and Mrs. and gee golly, or or when a gallon of gas was 25 cents? Remember when, quote, we went to state my senior year, unquote, actually meant something. I don't remember any of that, especially the gas prices. <laughs> One gas bubble I can't seem to choke down suffering of sports heartburn while chewing on another spring of state tournament skullduggery is this concept that we need to have two trillion classes in every high school sport. No. Big school, small school, class A, class AA, done. Perhaps an exception for football. The counter-argument I always have heard is, the state tournament isn't for you sports writers or fans looking for the next David vs. Goliath epic. This is about the kids. Wow, what a trump card. The kids. Well, just like so many heated social issues of our day, the same slogan can be applied for both sides of the argument. My contention with the current everyone deserves an all-state experience movement is that it's actually doing young people a disservice. And of course, when little Susie's 100-yard breaststroke state title is the equivalent of what a district championship was a decade ago, it's ruining the entertainment value for fans too. By steepening the standard for state tournaments, Sports transcendent takeaways are elevated, and that's what really matters for kids. Two things I'd like to point out to you. First of all, and this is sort of speculation, but doesn't it irk you to imagine how we got here? Like some high school state league bureaucrats were sitting in a room after a successful state basketball tournament back in 2001 thinking, you know, if we added another class, that would mean eight more towns and their fans buying tickets, buying concessions, staying in hotels, etc. Then someone else was like, we could do that at state cross country too. And lacrosse. There's only 12 teams in the state that play lacrosse, Bob. Think about it. Nowhere else would we soften such a ridiculous money grab with the false comfort of, quote, well, at least Tyson won't feel bad because after all, he got to make a TikTok video of him riding the police escort bus to, to the big city. Second, and more to the ethos of this piece, if the idea that adding classes gives smaller schools a chance and more athletes postseason opportunities... Why stop at four or five classes? Why not six, seven, eight? Now that I type that, I feel like I'm Donald Trump in that debate clip where he warned us that if we elected Joe Biden, there would be four, five, six, six dollar a gallon gas. Hopefully I'm not too prescient. Or even nine different classes. Why not 30? The last suggestion seems foolish, doesn't it? You know why? What you're feeling is the left hemisphere of your brain instantly evaluating the obvious devaluation of what it means to go to state Well, the right hemisphere aches and pains over why you deserve, after schlepping your kids to every single summer baseball camp imaginable for a decade, when you could have been just going on nice 14er hikes, or talking to them about what they like, to see Billy and Bobby both take Sunrise Academy for gifted children of privilege, go Bobcats, to the 16, 17-year-old class A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A state tournament. But if there's too many classes, you whisper to yourself in the front seat of your Land Rover, well, then going to state just doesn't mean as much. Exactly. 
But if we have only two classes, then there will be some schools that might not go to state for like 50 years. Now you're really starting to understand the point. But, but the children. It's interesting, but the greatest generation, as far as I've been told, did just fine. And they didn't grow up hearing the phrase, quote, mental health. Ironically, they probably had better mental health because of it. All the old timers, the ones who grew up knowing the only chance Bagley High had of making state rested on those three Knutson brothers in the starting lineup, moved on after Cass Lake hit a three-quarter court prayer to send everyone back north empty-handed back in 1951. I'm totally making that story up, by the way. Granted, they were deprived from vomiting onto their college resume a sloppy, sports-centric stew of six-time All-League, three-time state participant, A-A-A-A-A, state consolation, third-place runner-up. Even against those odds, sports somehow found a way to cultivate a sense of perspective, work ethic, and love for the game in those young men and women. Here's where a New York Times writer might cite some Oxford study that describes how young athletes who experience failure in athletics end up attaining higher-paying jobs, but the correlation isn't that cookie-cutter, and these days, defending my case with science isn't what it used to be. Plus, this is cedarskier.com. If you found your way here, you probably already knew that, quote, or that, this is italicized, when society waters down success, it dilutes the inherent gift of striving to attain it. And when it comes down to it, the only real value in sports is that it serves as a training ground for young people to learn how to strive for, define, and achieve true success. That's exactly why state should be a really, really big deal. Getting there should be almost impossible. Winning the whole thing, unthinkable. It should be the stuff statutes get erected in the city park for. And when number 12 gets passed on to a gangly freshman, everyone whispers in hushed tones, that was old Graham McGavin's number. It should be as mythical as walking home from school, uphill, both ways. Okay, so I think you get the point there. And hopefully you enjoyed the little column. You can find it at cedarscare.com. Go click on it, whatever, share it. Um... It's just kind of sad when we have, we live in this world where state high school athletics isn't really what it once was. And not only that, not only is it too devalued, everyone's getting to state, there's, you know, a gazillion classes and, and it's not even like, like state isn't even just the final eight teams anymore. It's, you know, like the entire 64 team bracket, whatever, you know, um, it, people aren't even, maybe rightly so valuing it themselves like they don't choose to compete at state if they're hurt or there's you know a bigger game somewhere else or some weird national thing or whatever like they'll just kind of poo-poo it now i will say most kids aren't really totally like that like like they there's the next the exception the really good high school runner that goes to like the pre-classic and misses their state meet that that does happen and to some degree it's like all right that's maybe justified he is gonna try and break alan webb's or Jim Ryan at the time, you know, like national records, stuff like that. Okay, fine. Most kids care about competing at the state, the state meet, but, but it's crazy how clueless they seem to like the devaluation of this. You know, they're, they're not growing up like watching Hoosiers and kind of dreaming in that way, or, or maybe even more scary. They are growing up and watching Hoosiers, dreaming that, and then we're kind of just handing them that dream. We're not really giving them the reality that, like, Hoosiers was a movie because it's so rare. Um, Yeah, and so I think that argument of, well, it's not about you, it's for the kids. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. It's for the kids. We're hurting the kids by doing that. There's so many arguments like that in society today where people will say, like, 
oh, you just don't care about XYZ group or XYZ, you know, team or whatever. You don't, you don't, you don't really care about them. It's like, no, no, no. I do care about them. That's why I believe this because I actually care what's best for them. You know, you're the one, there's a difference between, um, caring for what's best for someone and letting someone do what they want to do. You realize this very quickly when you're a parent. We all, uh, parents all know this. You don't, you don't base morality off of what a person wants to do. You know, what is best for someone might be different than what they want to do. And if you, if you follow the stream of, I'm just going to let my kid do whatever they want to do, you're not actually loving them by doing that. Okay. So, this this is maybe a little bit even you know the same kind of concept idea you know like yeah i i don't think what we're doing is helping them ultimately it's just kind of ruining it and it's ruining it for everyone so i think it's a poor argument to to kind of say hey sports writer get over yourself you know it's fine having five classes this means a lot to the kids it means a lot for them when they get to go down to the city and the big city with their team and they get to compete at a state tournament that means a lot to them man no it doesn't anymore that's the whole point it used to mean a lot for them or should have meant a lot for them when there was one class or two classes because it was, again, almost impossible for a kid to do that. But by making it so that everyone can do it, eventually kids are going to, this doesn't even matter anymore. Who cares? And if they don't, it's really scary because we're basically just kind of like giving them this total bubble-wrapped world. Then all of a sudden that, that pops when they leave and they go, wait a minute, I kind of had this false sense of like, I'm really, really good at everything. No, you're not. Like it's some of the most valuable lessons you learn aren't from winning something. It's from losing. It's from gaining the perspective of knowing just how insignificant you are. And I guess that's the Skeologian rant over. <laughs> Tie again some tracks and running. Speaking of track, if someone, I'm a big fan of Abby. Um, can wait, Nikeniki, Abby Nikeniki the Wyzetta great who was not at state track and field. I noticed in the results, like, where is Nick Henneke? Side note, I almost named our second daughter Nick Henneke. I thought it would be great if we named her Nick Henneke Wait, let me think about this. Nick Henneke Gedeke. Nick Henneke Gedeke. Like Gedeke, the trumpet composer from the Gedeke Concerto. That Nikeniki Gedeki. I can't even say it. Nikeniki Gedeki. I could have figured it out. Ajay's laughing at me, but it would have been. It would have worked. It would have worked. Um, and then maybe even steal from Sydney Gitabide. So you could have Keniki Gedeki Gitabide, which would have been just an unbelievable name to say. Uh, I'm digressing here, but let's move on to our other topics. Let's talk a little bit about some some running. And some Norwegian-ness here in this next segment. We'll combine both of them because Jakob Ingebretsen just ran 754 on the two-mile, and that's just insane. All that more here on the Cedar Skier Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Um, <clears throat> my wife just came into the studio and said that we did not actually, in fact, almost name our child Nikeniki Gedeki Gidabide, Um, but she was not... At the paper signing, when I was signing the official documents, and I, I was close, you know, Ella, Ella was almost not just simply Ella. We'll just leave it at that. Um, so if you've been living under a rock, you might not know that Jakob Ingebretsen ran seven fifty four in the two mile. Actually, you might not be living under a rock, and you might still not know that, but that's a pretty significant milestone in distance running, and. On a weekend 
when we also saw the steeplechase world record fall, 752, both of those records were pretty significant, partially because of how old they are. The 758 was Daniel Komen's two-mile record. And I think, I don't know, I haven't looked into this, actually, I probably should know this, but um, Jakob Ingebretson, I'm sorry, Komen was the only person who has run back-to-back sub-four-minute miles. And I actually don't know the official splits on Ingebretson, other than I do know that he ran apparently 352 in his second 1600, which means... It's possible he ran like four flat point zero one and then three fifty four or something for the full mile splits. Don't know that for sure. Haven't looked into it. So if someone knows that and can verify, but I think Coleman might still have the distinction of being the only person on earth who has run two sub four miles. The other thing is with the whole shoe debate. Oh, sorry. The other record, uh, just quickly want to mention the five K world record for women went down. Um, and the reason this is crazy is because Faith Kip Yegon, who ran 14 minutes and 5 seconds in the 5K, just had one double-check that time, 14.05. She also ran 3.49 in the 1,500 like a week prior. So now you've got Faith Kip Yegon, who is, you know, she's a championship runner. She wins the 1,500. And in fact, I got to look at, uh, where's my Faith Kip Yegon page? Oh, come on now. Faith. Sorry, bear with me. I just want to make sure I have how many world titles she's... She's only 29. She gave birth and then came back. So Olympic finals, she was 16th in the 1500 in 2012 and then won gold in 2016 and gold in 2020. So she's back-to-back gold medals in the 1500. That alone is like, you, you know, you're an all-timer. You're, a, you're a, in the Sebco conversation right away. Her world championship finals, 1500... 2013 fifth 2015 she was a silver medalist 2017 she won gold in doha in 2019 she won silver and then in oregon last year she was a gold medalist. so two silvers two golds and if you count all these world the world championships kind of back to back to back really what you've got like 2015 silver medal at worlds 2016 a gold 2017 a gold 2019 a silver 2020 a gold 2022 a gold She's won back-to-back global titles in the event twice and then had silvers on the other years. So since 2015, she has owned the 1500. Now she steps up and takes the world record in the 5K. She has the world record in both those events. Those are the two signature events. And they're also kind of different enough events that that's just an astounding thing to point out. Um, Now, one thing, I've never brought this up in terms of kind of contrasting women's and men's distance running, but... A lot of people are enamored by the um, Safan Hassan, Safan Hassan's performance. So Safan Hassan is came up from the 800 and has progressed to run really world class level from the 1500 all the way through the, the marathon. She won the London Marathon in her debut, but she is mo- more you would say a a 1500 meter speedster who can run the 5k and the 10k. Kind of like Mo Farah, really, like a 5K, 10K person. But, but in 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 women's distance running, the main difference here, when you start talking 1500 and 800, is the biological differences between men and women um, have a consequential effect in how those races are won from just like a sheer energy system perspective. Um, and this is why on the men's side, an 800 meter runner is like a totally different specimen 
than a 1500 meter runner even because one of those events is so much more aerobic the 1500 um it is possible obviously the world record like hakeem al garouge was a miler who could also win gold in the 5k you know so the 1500 5k is a very difficult double to do but it's doable mostly because the 1500 is so aerobic still technically but the 800 is so anaerobic that you really have to be a sprinter to be good at on the men's side that is not that is not true as much on the women's side uh, and especially since they've kind of added some of these testosterone rules now the IAAF has um, it is now very possible for like a Safan Hassan, who is a 155, 800 meter runner, mostly on the fact that she is just has incredibly graceful, perfect biomechanics. You know, she's she's fast. She can run that basically just like a very, very fast 1500 and still extend her way up to the marathon. So there is there's kind of a difference between like Safan's amazing triple, still amazing when she tripled in the 15, the five and the 10 at the Tokyo Olympics, didn't win all of them, but won two of them and was in bronze in the other. That's still an amazing thing because it's because of the volume, but it's not quite the same level of amazement, I don't think, as if like you saw with Saido Oida, I don't I'm not saying his name right, but the guy from the eighties or whatever who was literally world class at the eight hundred all the way through the ten K. Like that guy, that's just once in a lifetime maybe. We might not ever see that again. We we literally might not see that here in the Olympic sports. Um, so triples are kind of fun to think about right now because his Hassan is an incredible athlete and it's now, you know, she could win the marathon in the Olympics if she wanted to, she could also win the Olympic 1500. She could focus on either of those and win it. You can't say that about anyone on the guy's side. However, Jakob Ingebrigtsen now <laughs> coming into his own with a 754 two mile and being the Olympic gold medalist in the 1500, um, and a world champion at 5K, could he be the person, especially with the state of the 800 meters on the men's side across the globe, could he be someone who at an Olympics could legitimately try to win a gold medal in the 800 and also an event like the marathon? I know you're, I know what you're thinking, like, wow, that was way too big of a leap. Why wouldn't he just do like 15-5? Well, he's probably going to do the 15-5. And in fact, Ingebrigtsen, I think, he might do 15, 5, 10. He might try and do what Hassan did, and he would have a great shot at, at completing that that triple. He would be the favorite, I think, in all those events. But Man, it's tough. 5K, 10K, you've got Kip Limo. You've got the world record holder. The Ugandans are amazing, right? Like uh, the, That would be a, a tough ask, especially if either of those athletes are just focused on one of those. But like... He legitimately in any of those races could win at those distances. The 800 is kind of crazy. Jakob hasn't ever shown that he could do that. But like the reason I bring that up is more like if you want to be legendary, like truly a legend, isn't it more legendary if you tried to win? Let's even say the 15. Let's say Jakob goes to his next Olympics and just tells Norway, I want to run the 1500. I'm going to win gold. Okay. Then I want to run the marathon. Like, can I be on the marathon team? Right. And just like, get in the marathon because if you could do the 1500 in the marathon i think that would be just the most insane double that's ever been done maybe across like all sports you know it would just be so wild and Jakob trains in in such a way that he really could like it lends to marathon training in some ways he's doing tons of high volume tons of threshold work like he he kind of almost is training for the marathon it's he's way a different type of fitness for the 1500 than like the old school method, I don't think of, 
of being a true 1500 meter runner. Um, there's, there's a lot to, to, to talk about when we talk about Jakob Ingebrigtsen, honestly, like you can talk about the whole Norwegian model, how it's working or how it's not working. The fact that he was coached by his dad and, and had his brothers, like two brothers that were elite world-class runners around him and, and kind of shepherding him up. Like it's sort of the ultimate example of like a little bit of a crazy psychopathic like family structure, you know? And I, I mean, I say that in the most loving way possible. I don't, I don't, I've never met Jakob's dad, so I can't really go like, okay, that's a little bit weird. Right. And Jakob clearly is someone who like still energized by running. He's not like, it's, this isn't like a forced thing on him, but it, even though it almost kind of feels like it, you know, he, he set, he's the youngest person on the, on, on earth's history to run under four minutes in the mile. And to see someone that's that much of a prodigy actually fulfill and walk down the, um, you know, fulfilling that talent to its utmost level. We don't see that a lot. Like LeBron James is the other example that comes to mind right away of someone who is, you know, they're the chosen one and they, they live up to every unrealistic expectation put up upon them. Now, Jakob does it under, you know, a much, much smaller pressure a much smaller stage than LeBron. I honestly think LeBron might be one of the most amazing stories in sports for that reason. Uh, just if I can, you know, go off a little bit here, LeBron being on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a junior, right after Michael Jordan retires, and basically being given the mantle that like the, the NBA is going to rise or die with you. And by the way, you have physical tools that no one on this earth has ever been gifted with, um, you know, go forth and to have him have win NBA titles, set the scoring record, have a career that's lasted over 20 years. I mean, you can't ask for anything more than that. He has been everything and more than he was billed to be. He he might be the greatest NBA player of all time. I think there I honestly think the argument is more in his favor than anyone else. There's you just you have to to argue for someone else is it requires you to make non-data-based arguments. You know, the Jordan's like, "Well, Jordan just he just it's the eye test thing, right, man? Jordan no one was better than him." And look, he won all those titles. Like, no, Jordan won six titles, great. But LeBron brought his team to, I think it was nine straight NBA finals. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things considering the depth and the size. of. That's definitely more amazing than Bill Russell winning 11. LeBron bringing his team to nine is much more amazing than that. Sorry, you'll, you won't convince me otherwise. Um, 11 and 12, is that what Russell had? So anyway, Jakob, he kind of captures some of this because the pressure is all there and he has gradually and consistently improved. And he's done that in such a way, and then living in Norway, which is sort of this hub of they do everything right, they have the best sports scientists, they have the most finely tuned, integrated system in terms of sports science. So, of course, there's no way Jakob's doping, right? There's no way that he's doing anything wrong. There is that level of like physiological arrogance, I think, around his system. And and as you've seen some of these other stars, the triathlete who won the gold medal from Norway, I think there was a pair of triathletes. I can't think of their names right now, but Norway's had success there. Success there. Therese Johag, her dominance in endurance sports, obviously Klabo. Like the Norwegians have had just some really 
some some huge stars in endurance sports. Um, and kind of going back, you know, I, I I opened up the can of worms a little bit in the last show, just talking about the whole this whole idea of like if if you think that Russian athletes have always been doping, how can Norwegians possibly ever beat them? Like, does that mean they're doping too? Like, it just it's this kind of conundrum and dilemma we have. I think it's interesting how there hasn't been like a crazy amount of pushback at all when it comes to Jakob really throughout his entire career. You know, like no one has has at least come forth yet and been like, aren't we going to be skeptical of this? Now, there's a couple things that I would bring up, honestly, when it comes to this issue. First of all, let's consider the shoes. If it's if there was a recent study I saw, and I believe Magnus um, put it on his Twitter, Steve Magnus, the sports scientist guy, uh, well-known runner, 401 high school miler, who's a doc, PhD now in exercise science, former University of Houston coach, I believe. He mentioned that like this research came out that's that said that the super shoes are are really it's close to like four seconds a mile. So like the four flat is now three fifty six today. Um I mean the the eye test and the results kind of back that up. If you look at just how deep the NCAA Division One indoor mile field was, wasn't it almost a hundred people that were like under four oh one? I mean it was just absurd. Um you kind of go, wow, remember like just five years ago, six years ago, eight years ago, Lowie LaLang, like being just one of a handful, you know, 354, that was a big deal. Miles Batty, all those guys in the early 2010s that seemed like they were being breaking barriers and now like they would just be so average. And it does kind of go, it's like, I, I don't think that jump, you can just say, you know, athletes are training better. It's like, it's it's only been four or five years and we've seen like three second drops. So Let's just play around with it. If four seconds is a real thing, per two mile, maybe you got six, seven, eight seconds. All of a sudden, Jakob's run turns into an 803 or something like that. And you're like, huh, that's definitely not as special. Still a phenomenal time. I think we saw Galen Rupp run 807 on an indoor track. Um, And to me, Rupp had the eye test of that's the greatest American distance runner that we have ever seen. He could run anything from the mile up through the 10K, eventually the marathon. He's the best. And he sort of bridges this gap between like, he really hasn't been in super shoes other than during the twilight of his career, kind of. I mean, I guess the 2016 marathon. Well, he won bronze with that. That was kind of the hotly debated marathon Olympics because Nike hadn't really officially debuted those super shoes, but gave them to Kipchoge and Rupp and a couple others. It's someday, 40 years down the line, we'll read some epic sports novels, I think, on that whole issue. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, he's he's the guy who passed the eye test to me of being the greatest athlete of all time. And I think his records are going to be, they're going to be totally wiped off. They already are, the 5K, 10K, some of those indoor records. So, you know, I think it's hard really, for, what I'm trying to get to is it's hard to know just how amazing Jakob is. And if it's real, you have the whole idea of doping that you have with every runner that breaks a record. So that's not unique to him. But you also have the shoe technology and, and you know, maybe we need someone biomechanically to analyze his running and go, oh, you know what? These super shoes help him more than a, a normal, another person because he's really, he really isn't that biomechanically efficient. My eye test on that even does say, would suggest that. I don't think Jakob looks like this beautiful runner. He's not like a Kipchoge. He's not even like a Rupp. Galen Rupp had a really beautiful stride, I think. But like Jakob's a little bent over. He's got like that. He's got good knee drive and everything. But like his stride, it's not, it's not perfect. And I've heard that for people who are, 
really naturally have have beautiful strides, efficient strides, the super shoes are not impacting them as much. And the Centro Wits is, you know, like he'd be another one with just a perfect stride. He's kind of passed it up, um, passed through this time where it, he's not around, you know, to really see how it would affect him too much because he's kind of passed the twilight of his career. Same thing with um, Willis. The Is he New Zealand? The guy who broke four minutes in the mile for, you know, 21 years in a row. Uh, anyway, but but here's something that I wrote down in some of my show notes as it relates to Jakob Ingebrigtsen. And this is something that, regardless of all the stuff I talked about prior leading up to this, one thing that is that I am certain of contributes to his goodness is this triumvirate, okay? Good training, shoes, and the right mindset. So I guess, sorry, <laughs> that's the three things, and I just kind of debated the first two of those things a little bit. Should have checked my notes before I went on the rant. But yeah, those are the three things that make him amazing right now. The good training, we, we you know, he does seem to be someone who has been able to handle a high volume of training. And I do say volume intentionally. He's, he runs a lot. And I think to be really, really good at any sport, you have to do something a lot, but you also have to have like high quality. It's high quality and high quantity. Uh, the people who are just like quality matters more than quantity, I don't think they're really considering all of the science, you know, that would disagree with them or at least argue with them. Like, no, no, no. The very now, if you want to roll, if you're gonna roll the dice, yeah, favor towards quality. If you've got a 15 year old kid, quality is probably more important than quantity. That principle is true. But when we're talking world class athletes, it is quantity and quality, and quantity is is dependent upon quality to some degree. The quality of your rest days especially the quality of your recovery, uh, but also the quality uh, or the consistency. Consistency is what equals quantity. Ultimately, you can't get hurt. Jakob is one of those athletes now going through the prime of his career, going through really, he's been racing for such a long time and he hasn't had the significant injuries that have taken him away. This is something that some of these American stars we're seeing come through, um, especially on the girls' side, you think of some of these high school two miles, five k times that have been shattered, have been shattered by by women who are who have been getting injured, um, either in their first year of college or maybe at the end of high school. And to me, that's a that's a nerve wracking sign. Like, yeah, it's great that maybe some of these times are coming down. Maybe we're living in the era of the next Mary Deckers, but it's like, man, they um they're not. They're not staying on their feet. And ultimately, your prime isn't when you're 18 or 17. Like you, you even on the female side of things, like you you want to be good and healthy from age like 23 to 31. But anyway, going back to Jakob, he's been healthy. He's had he's had consistent training, he's had good training. But miraculously, he has an incredible mindset. What I mean, the, the cool thing about his mindset is he holds together this paradoxical idea of being confident and focused but also kind of loose kind of uh you know if, if you've ever watched some of his post-race interviews they are the best it's like he's messing with people you know he he kind of has this almost disrespectful and disrespectful kind of in the you're just a punk kid kind of disrespectful you know like He's not he's not like the model professionalism where he's gonna give these cookie cutter cliche answers that are safe and polite. 
he's he's okay just kind of winging it. He doesn't say things that are like inappropriate, but you know, if a reporter asks him a question that's that is kind of a dumb question, the the professional polite response is to still just give the reporter kind of what they need. They you give the cliche response, and Jakob will just kind of just sit there and kind of be like, no, yes, I wanted to win. Yes, I did. I wanted to win. You know, like yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how to say that. He's just kind of can be blunt and loose and funny. And um, now there's a great Let's Run interview video clip too, where even he's talking about how he wants to win. I think it was three straight 1500 meter golds. Maybe he was back to back. First is back to back. Yeah, this was at Worlds last year, I think, where they had this little whiteboard for athletes to write stuff on, and and he wrote back to back. And um, he didn't wasn't aware that that Seb Coe, I think has run or won two back to back gold medals in the fifteen hundred. So he writes back to back. Yeah, I want to be the first person. And this reporter's like, no, you won't be the first person. So what does Jakob do? He kind of he kind of looks like he doesn't try to play it off like, oh, I guess I know that. You know, he didn't try to do that any shy thing. He just kind of goes, oh, and then writes back after. He's like, can you change it to back to back to back? You know, so I want to win three Olympic gold 1500s in a row and it was just like this humorous exchange it kind of goes to show it's a perfect example that he is confident in himself but he's having fun you know like that was just a, it was a fun loose moment you know somebody was like so does this mean you're committed to running through 2028 because prior to this you know some people are like is Jakob gonna just retire he might just walk away tomorrow and I think he's kind of messing with people like that yeah maybe I will you know but but then he comes back and has this like crazy uh, assault on some of the longest held world records. And you go, I, this guy doesn't seem like a dude who is satisfied with one gold medal. Like he seems like he wants to be a legend a little bit on like the Clabo side too, you know? Um, and so it's interesting. I think, I think that goes without saying that it goes, it flies under the radar is how much does the personality of this athlete contribute to their success? We know that you have to be confident. We know you have to think that you're a winner to actually be a winner. And we know that winning more fuels that and just kind of solidifies that confidence. Um, but if, you, if you're if you too Kobe Bryant-like and a little too, like, almost angered, sometimes that can work as it did with Kobe or with, like, a Michael Jordan. But, but a lot of times that can destru- destroy you too from the inside, and especially endurance sports. Almost like if you're too serious and take your take yourself too seriously that's not and that's not good either so it's just amazing he's got to be one of the first athletes to come across here to be so wildly successful at the top of his game and kind of have both of those things in place where it's not like you can say he's a screwball talent who's squandering seconds he is definitely someone who is absolutely maximizing his ability and we're watching in real time to be the youngest sub four minute miler and now a world record holder and a gold medalist there's no missing elements on that resume now. But at the same time, yeah, you, you get him in these post-interviews, and he, he doesn't, I don't know, he's not, he's not someone who's like in a dark way, singularly focused on the mission of being the greatest of all time. He's going to enjoy the road all the way there. Jakob Ingebretson, the man, the myth, the legend, coming on the Cedar Skier podcast next week, Jakob is... And so we'll have him here in studio in Leadville. We're flying him out on the United States ski pole jet. United States ski pole. Uh, sorry, read the ad there. The United States ski pole company making great ski poles, and it's roller ski season. So you're gonna want to get the there at a minimum. Even you know, get the tips. You can order like they're like ten bucks. 
I don't know if that price is accurate. Now I should probably look that up. Andy Liebner is going to be super mad at me. Actually, I don't think he will. I think he's thrilled about this publicity, but the the United States ski pole tips last a long time. They're quite sharp and they're quite large. So I like them a lot. I use them and I probably need to order a few more. My United States ski pole company pulls, um, I'm getting ready for roller ski season. It's almost started. I might go out today. I haven't, I, I went on like a 25 minute skate ski the other day just to kind of go, okay, yeah, I remember how to do this, but I was not into it. I was, well, I was into it, but during the NBA finals, I've been a little more into like Urkelina training, which sounds weird. Like that'd be more boring, but just kind of watching the NBA finals, having something that's different. I'm getting fueled up. I'm getting I'm getting more into running right now. I've been running a lot more, um, not even biking as much. So I'm feeling a little bit out of bike shape. Like if I had to go on a century ride, it would not be pretty possibly. I already did the elephant rock last year at this time. Haven't done that yet this year. So not sure where I'm going to be. But um, anyway, moving on here, there's been a little bit of drama on social media and it involves me. What am I talking about? Find out after the break here on the Cedar Skier Podcast on Shovel Lake Public Radio. All right, welcome back. You heard Novi there getting in on the action a little bit. She's getting so verbal, so talkative. Um, Novi's just... Uh, we can't chronicle too much, I guess, her life here on the Cedar Skier Podcast, so I, I'll stop talking about her now. But but she's been just an absolute joy. My two daughters, Novi and Ella, not Kennekeny, Kennekeny, Uh But anyway, we move on. I, one thing I wanted to bring up to Cedar Skier Nation, especially especially those of you in Colorado, I am really becoming enamored by Camp Hale. Um, I've lived in Leadville now. This is going to be going on the fourth year, I believe, and. I haven't spent a lot of time at Camp Hale other than just driving by it <laughs> and uh, until recently. At the end of the last two, the end of the last ski season, I went there to double pull. I'm like, you know, heck, this might be okay for crusking. I see the snowmobile groomers taking, you know, grooming it, keeping it up pretty frequently throughout the winter. It's like, let's, let's just see what happened, right? The remnants of this, it ended up being great. It kind of motivated me to think I got to come out here at some point, like just take some chances, get out here in the morning and see if I can catch these trails before the snowmobiles have and see if I can like, just see how far I can go, see where these things lead up to Vail Pass, maybe even. Um, so that's on the winter, but this summer, even I went on a run on the way into the GoPro games and, um, yeah, just really was enjoying, it's a great place to run there, especially gravel, you know, like it's not single track. You're, you're going to be looking at some great gravel roads, but I really got to bring my gravel bike over there because I think you can make a serious 40, 50, 60 mile, um, day out of kind of testing out where all these roads end up. And yeah, you might have to do a few out and backs, lollipops here and there, but it's phenomenal, and it's it's not super. It's not as steep as I thought. Like I guess I thought there's obviously the big flat plain that you've got if you wanna if you wanna just get get a, an easy four or five mile run and just not have much climbing at all. You can do that if you wanna head up climbing in one direction and then turn back around and come down. You can do that too. If you wanna make it a epic point to point and get all the way to again, like I said, Vale Pass or Redcliffe or whatever, you can do that as well. So. Yeah, there's just a lot of options out of that. I didn't realize what a nice hidden gem that was. And that's just the, the Camp Hale side of Highway 24 is pretty good. But the other side of it as well has a, a bunch of gravel roads that you can connect or go over and explore. So, man, I hope Colorado stays that way. I really like using that area. Discovering it recently, thought I would bring that up. Now, I teased coming into coming out of the break talking about some Twitter drama. And Twitter for me is a place that I 
tend to um I'm just on Twitter now. I'm seeing I got retweeted. Interesting. Um I've been retweeted. Okay. What one's bio is right blah blah blah. Okay, anyway. Um yeah, what what were the tweets that I was involved in? Um I got to try and see if I can figure out how to work Twitter. Okay, I tracked this down. This is sorry for those of you coming for some hot ski takes. We spent most of this first hour here just talking about running stuff. We will get to some skiing news. I, I have some things I want to discuss. This is another running story, though. Kyle Merber, who is a former 1500 meter runner, the former NCA 1500 meter record holder, I believe. Um, his pro career wasn't, uh, it was short, nothing super special, couldn't really break through. And then now he's a journalist. He has a blog. He writes for Sidious Mag, I believe, as well. But he has a decent social media, social media following. And uh, side note, I actually went on a run with Kyle Merber when I was working the Outdoor Track and Field Championships maybe seven, eight years ago. We It was in Sacramento and... Yeah, he was on a run with some of his teammates, and then they broke off, and we ran together for like 45 minutes, just the two of us. It's kind of wild. Uh, nice nice dude, fun to chat with. Um, he seemed a little like, for someone who was like 334 chops fresh out of college and the collegiate record holder, he seemed very not confident in himself and just kind of like, I don't know, lost soul. I was, I, I told my buddy back home after this happened, I was like, I'm pretty sure I was kind of like talking Kyle Merber off the ledge, but I have no idea. It was weird. Uh, but anyway, he shares this tweet and it's, uh, he says, this is Merber's tweet. Social media makes tracks so much better. And um, it's a screenshot Instagram. A person, Ross running 16 had said, no way Katir is clean. He's referring to, um, Mo Katir, I believe, is the first name of Katir. Let me just double check that, make sure. Mohammed Katir, yes, yeah, Spanish long distance runner. This is a guy who broke through a couple of years ago, went from being like a 1350 guy to like 1240. <laughs> and so he's sort of been this new poster child of an example of doping. I don't personally think that that kind of breakthrough is necessarily the thing that, that you would go, well, he's got to be doping. But suffice to say, the... The uh, trolls in running forms tend to go to Katir and go, he's doping. Now, Katir, the reason Merber was so thrilled about this is that Katir comes out and actually responds to this guy. He says, Ross running 16, what hurts, friend? Well, you criticize me that this is normal. It is the nature of men when there is another man better than him. They envy him. Ask your wife if Katir is handsome or not. And then it has two like emojis of kitties. Surely your wife would be delighted to be with a winner, not a loser. I don't know. First of all, I don't know if this is translated, but like super crappy grammar writing. You can hardly even decipher the actual meaning of this. Just sad state of affairs is my first take. But second, um, let's go to Ross running 16 saying no way Katir is clean. To me, it's a little bit of a low blow like really you're gonna go on here and say this are you, are you do you think you've got a mob behind you that agrees with you or not i don't know but like what's the point it's mean you have no evidence of that you're just saying garbage um and then but then third katir to get on here and interact with the public that is a cool aspect i believe of social media and in that sense i would agree with merber it's cool when social media is here and the superstars can come right out here and comment with the rest of us so that's cool but this is like such a a low stooping by Katir to respond in this way. Um, 
you know, it it actually reeks of an insecurity that would suggest more that he is doping. Because if you're not doping, you you either don't even mess around with these trolls or you, you come with some sort of more professionally polished um the high road statement. He is not taking the high road here at all. Uh, and, and, um, so I commented on here. I said, Katir's comment is way, way worse than the guy accusing him of not being clean. Lost respect for that guy for sure. And someone responded to, this is like the first tweet I've and comment on something I've had in forever. I, I really use Twitter to follow news. I don't interact much, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to stand up here for marriage, the institution. And that's what I felt. This guy, Chris runs, Chris runs, C buns says bio is right. Bad treater, bad tweeter for sure. That's referring to me because I have bad tweeter in my bio. Good call, Ryan. That was dumb. And then I respond. So you think this is a good look for Katir, which I think is a totally, here we go. Okay. You're going to troll with me. Well, put your money where your mouth is. So Katir comes back and basically suggests that this man's wife is, you know, cheating on him or would rather be with him. Not actually cheating, but like, you know, ask your wife if Katir's handsome or not. Surely she would want to be with me. Like, okay, that's just <laughs> so insecure on your part. Again, this is like what, what bullies did in like eighth, 10th, 12th grade, you know, like that's how they're, they're so insecure. They're going to say something like that. It's, it's almost like a, your mom joke, only worse, you know, like, cause it's, He's actually attacking this guy. So, yeah, I, I just go, all right, well, so you think this is a good look. Like, if you're a world-class runner, someone accuses you of doping and you're going to strike back in this manner, that looks good. Of course it doesn't. It's terrible. And um, I tweet, I didn't even, well, I did. I waited a while around. This guy didn't tweet back. So I said, the silence you hear, ladies and gentlemen, is Lambeau Field. And then I wrote in parentheses, a simply brilliant tweet. This guy probably, that probably went way over his head. But of course, commenting on the radio broadcast when Aaron or Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre threw an interception in the playoff game and it was just totally silent. And this guy goes, the silence you hear is Lambeau Field. An amazing audio clip. Um, because the, he, you have no response to that. What are you supposed to say? Yeah, I think it is a good look. Okay, well, you're just, a, you're a fifth grader, fifth grade boy, eighth grade boy too. Like, it's just pathetic. Now, this Dave Barrett guy goes, surely you can see it. it's a bit of a laugh, though. The, sports, the, uh, the sport needs some characters, and he has every right to reply to him if he's calling him a cheat. Fair game. And I said, yeah, I get it, and I don't mind the reply. I just think other people's marriages, spouses are kind of off limits, I guess. That's all. I stand by that. I don't think, you know, it's ridiculous to say, again, I appreciate the interaction. I think that part is good. I don't necessarily agree with him that the sport needs some characters. Not necessarily. Like, why don't we grow the game in the way it should be grown by having an attractive product, not let's get spicy and juicy. Uh, There's nothing worse, I think, in U.S. track and field right now than the fact that Othing Mo and um, Sidney McLaughlin are not the most famous athletes like in America, period. McLaughlin is on this. I talked about LeBron James. Sydney is on the same level as LeBron in terms of talent and then coming through on talent. She is in terms of the 400 meter hurdles. I mean, it's like we haven't seen someone that talented in that one event. I get that it's in kind of an avant-garde event, but she is unbelievable and she wins all the time. And and Mo hasn't lost a race since she's been a pro. I don't think in the 800 hasn't really appeared out here now this year, but a gold medalist. These are two young African-American women with more class than 
you know, the rest of the USA track and field team combined, practically. Maybe Vashti Cunningham, you'd have to throw in there and say she's classy too. But I mean, these are these people, Mo Mo and McLaughlin should be like multimillionaire on billboards everywhere. But instead, the the track star that we always hear about that grabs the headlines is Shakari Richardson. Another talented sprinter, but has not delivered any of the goods, but has delivered plenty of drama, and that's the only thing keeping her career afloat at this point. You know, she has to stay relevant by doing that instead of letting her feet do the talking. And so, yeah, I don't necessarily agree that we need characters here. And I think this is a totally immature comment. Um, Now, if he strikes back and is joking in a different way, I have a different thought about it. Again, I kind of go, look, man, like someone else's spouse, that's off limits. Or or if you're going to go there, like I'm going to definitely just kind of have a totally different idea of what you are. And I think the fact that I'm I'm actually kind of surprised I didn't have more people pile on my back uh in you know and rip me apart like wow dude look at this guy. Uh you, this isn't that deep kind of a thing. I'm surprised I didn't have that much. It's Twitter, it can be kind of a garbage atmosphere in terms of just sleuths that come out of nowhere in the woodwork and are are piling it on. And um the reason I'm surprised is yeah, the the morals of our world that we live in I think tend to not uphold and at least hold high the institution of marriage for sure and um you know loyalty and faithfulness uh, to one spouse it's not something so this is it just kind of goes to show like katir is living in this world where that this is just this is the same thing as joking about anything else that is less serious and it's like man um you know <laughs> sanctity in marriage is is maybe at the heart of like Every single societal problem you could you could almost trace it back to, especially in countries like America. You know that like uh, anyway, I, I shouldn't get too far down that that road. But but I mean, it, it is even and that's like statistically proven. It's not just me spewing that. Like you can you can go look that stuff up. It's how it relates to kids, education, um, wealth, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I thought that was un, uncalled for. It was weird. It was weird. That's the first Twitter drama. The other Twitter drama that we had, uh, the Minnesota State High School League had a tweet, and I had to screenshot this because they were very excited about the state tournament for track and field. And I think I simply just screenshot that retweet. and was like, hey, this is great. When are the brackets coming out? But um, So Minnesota State High School League showing some of their ineptitude. Again, they're not really understanding running. But, you know, we've talked a lot about running. And so let's move on to some ski news here because there's some interesting things going on here. I was listening to the um, Extra Blue podcast. First time I've listened to this is when I was lifting weights here. And I was like, hey, let's, let's try this out. Let's try out Extra Blue. Let's try out Elena. See how she does. She probably could use to get some, uh, get a USB mic, Elena. It costs like 40 bucks and your audio quality will improve tremendously. So that was one thing. I, I don't, she must not be using one of those. I was listening to the interview with David Norris. Now, granted, maybe maybe this was taking place, uh, you know, in in a, in a situation where that's not possible. But it didn't sound like it was really great audio quality on either end. It was it was a fine, but just small little critique. I don't know if that's even a critique suggestion. They were talking. Norris and Sonison were um, having a chat about all sorts of things, and uh, I I took away at least three key points I wanted to bring up. Before I do that, though, I have to say. David Norris and I keep running into each other like totally random here. So I don't know if he listens to the show or not. Um, he was on our show at one point. So you can go back, look at the archives and listen to our great interview with David Norris. We were kind of the first people, honestly, who gave an honest like, um, 
David Norris went from the is going from the Berkey to the World Champs. This deserves a story. That was us. I mean, I know our story didn't end up getting published first, but it was ready first. We had conducted that interview uh, before the uh, other publications posted out their little story, and then of course our story that that I wrote. It was I'm sorry if I'm sounding like I'm being cocky, but it was a much better tale than um, I don't, other publications that had posted similar stories. Like we we reached out to Rosie Grover. Uh, Jessica, we had quotes from a bunch of different people, like angles of this story, what it means. And of course, had a great sit down chat with David Norris. But anyway, I'm running into this guy like crazy. I think I brought this up on my last show, possibly. So sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I was in Buena Vista doing this whole Enoch celebration thing and went on a run at like 1030 in the morning, which is a totally random time. And I get on this trail of Buena Vista, the river walk trail, and I'm running. I'm like, this guy in front of me looks like it could be David Norris. He's got all on running stuff. And he's running um, with this woman. So it's like, maybe that's Jessica. And sure enough, it was. I said hi, went on my merry way. And then I was at the GoPro games and I saw both of them. Jessica is, Jessica Yeaton, that is, is um, kind of making this, well, I, I won't say transition to mountain biking. Like she has used mountain biking as a training tool in the past, but has been doing a lot more mountain bike racing. So she got sixth place in the pro division at the GoPro games for the XE mountain bike. She raced at the Gunny Growler a couple weeks before that. That's actually why she was coming through Buena Vista. So, yeah, I had a nice little chat with David Norris and Jessica, and it was fun. And they, uh, you know, David told me some some interesting things. I'm not going to say any of them on the show here. It was definitely not one of those situations where it was like, this should go public kind of a thing. But but it was fun, it was fun to hear some inside stuff when I mentioned, hey, I listened to that podcast with Elena. That was, that was interesting. You know, you guys had some guts sharing the stuff you shared. And um, I think going back even to our last show, talking about this idea that it's hard to sometimes even know what is true if you're a fan or even if you're a journalist, um, and probably even if you're a skier, but I think those guys, obviously, they are getting the brutal truth as much as possible as far as how teams are chosen, what's it actually like on the World Cup, what is the true difference between fast skis and not fast skis, and you know what's what's going on out there. Uh, they get they get to see that up close, but how much they actually are fee, are able to share that that is limited. Okay, that is limited. They because what are they supposed to do? They can't burn bridges. Their their athletic career depends upon it. Um, so yeah, we we kind of chatted about that whole theme, that whole idea, and, and it was interesting to to have that chat. Not going to talk more about that conversation, but I do want to bring up the show, and that's available. You can go listen to. Um, Elena talking to David and he, the three points I want to bring up are um, first of all criteria and national team selection this was something that they talked about um, and I think if I'm remembering correctly you know I mean going back to David Norris he was never named to the U.S. team which is just probably one of the most wild anecdotal facts in U.S. men's team history that the guy who arguably was the best distance skier at the time um, always found himself outside of the criteria established by U.S. Ski, and um, and yet still competed at he's competed at a couple World Championships, at least two, right? I think it was twenty twenty one, and then obviously last year. But he's never been named to the team. He's also been in some World Cups and had some decent World Cup performances. So you know they talked a lot about funding that what's the actual cost of that they talked about this national team selection making a living um and and so those are the points i kind of wanted to hit and uh, so going back this first one here so in terms of national team selection 
there were some coded words in here that I think I find interesting from Elena. I, I think I, I wrote down this quote. I don't know. If this, this is not a direct quote, but like she said something along the lines of, "I found out two athletes were named using discretionary methods." I think she she brought up this story about her not being named, and and then like you know the powers that be basically saying we're not going to name people discretionary. You know, you're really close, but we're not going to do it. And then later on, two people were named discretionary methods. So this is that's kind of what she was saying and I was like huh if you're those two athletes you definitely know who you are right so like again kind of I brought this up way long ago like how close and tightly knit is the U.S. ski team on the women's side like you you better believe there's got to be some cat fighting going on there because how could there not be when there's when there is the stakes things that are at stake and the differences between people who are You've got celebrities like Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins, and then you've got people like really trying to scrape by. And you've got people somewhere in between, and maybe they're older or you know, Sonison, late bloomer, really has had to like she hasn't been on that fast track where she's getting chance after chance after chance. Basically, you know, she's like winning the Berkey, working her way onto each of those World Cup starts, and and it's it's interesting, you know, like you do kind of see these two tracks. I feel like on the national team on our U.S. side where you've got some people who, for whatever reason, whether it's um, they are liked or they're talented or they just happen to like fit the objective criteria well, you know, maybe they were good at the right time. Uh, They seem to be on that inside track where opportunities come to them and are afforded to them more so than an athlete like a Norris or like a Sonison where you know, they are good at it at a wrong time. And so the objective criteria, it's there, it's fair, right? But it's, but it's like working against them. I guess I shouldn't say fair necessarily because that's kind of the whole point of their conversation is going, David Norris said this really well. He goes, you know, maybe, and he said this in the most gentle way. I, I honestly, I admire this guy for like his, he is, he's classy, right? He's not a cateer <laughs> basically, but you know, he kind of says maybe if the objective criteria is not, I'm paraphrasing here, but like is not um, selecting the skier who is the best. Maybe they have to go back and revisit that criteria. You know, so if Norris is winning everything, but then he's not getting named to the team, like how good is that criteria? How good are the the fine, the, how good is the fine print then? Um, and I thought that was a great point to bring up. I think these, I think the coaches though, like they have the right intent. They are thinking, and I'm talking now, like whoever is writing those criteria, whoever's discussing this, the boards, I think they have the right intent, the right idea. They, they're not just like willy nilly doing this. It's not nefarious. I don't think like they are, they are trying to use the signs that suggesting when athletes are at their peak, they're trying to, to think about developmentally what makes sense. Um, because to some degree, if you're if you're rewriting it so now it's ageist in the opposite direction like you're not gonna capture maybe talent at the right time and the nature of skiing is such that it is hard for people to i don't know like yeah graduate from a dartmouth and put aside a degree and a well-paying job to try and take their chances skiing and then if they're not really getting helped out it's like what am i doing here you know so what i'm trying to say is i i think i I don't like necessarily hold an ill will until i've proven otherwise that that the this criteria thing is like just flawed completely. They they might have to revisit it based on look at what Rosie Brennan's done. Look at what David Norris has done. I think they might have to revisit how they're if they are being ageist in a certain sense though. Like, hey, maybe we need to make this so if you're really good at 29 or 32, all of a sudden, like it's it's easier to to sling you up here, get you the support you need, and represent our country. 
That being said, the fact that Norris was able to so quickly compete and then do well, I guess that speaks to the fact that there is, I guess, an avenue, you know, for him to be able to do that. It's there. You know, if I train hard and soon my day will come, I could go out there and win a super tour. Maybe I get named too, or whatever. Um, but this also just brings up this whole idea of the larger issue of like, what is the point of a national team? Should we even have this? Um, I, I tend to feel that the best thing, the best solution for cross-country skiing as a sport to attract more audience, to grow um, enthusiasm in different pockets of the world, and to um, level the playing field from a ski prep side where Norway is so dominant right now, I do think like having a professional league with clubs and teams still might be the way to go. I know this is kind of an impossible solution, perhaps, but like if there was the NBA of World Cup skiing and you had like 14 different teams and you did a big expansion league draft, like however leagues get started, I guess, but like an expansion draft, you split up coaches or maybe not, maybe even don't like arbitrarily separate this, like have it privatized. So coaches uh it, whatever team is going to offer the most money to techs and coaches like they're just going to chuck it at it you know like you could have a salary cap of course i suppose but like if a club decides that they want to use their money towards coaching and staff more than players they can do that you know like set it up like a league because what that's going to do i think is like first of all we'll find out like how much the ski speed and ski prep side of things is is, is playing a role, but we'll also have this be natural. It won't just be, you know, I heard on a, on a, another podcast, someone talking about the idea of like, you know, let's having a, a Norwegian wax tech member, like working in the bus of another lower country, or like maybe having a neutral fist bus and like kind of how biathlon maybe does it or whatever. It's like, but what's the motivation there for the Norwegian guy to give away any secrets? There's none, but like, if you have this private and now it's the San Antonio Spurs versus the Dallas Mavericks and, um, you know, one wax tech against another, like they just want their team to win. You, you have to structure it so there's incentive for people to be their best. And and yet, if you want to break up that monopoly, also simultaneously do that. So that's kind of why I like the league idea. But it also then solves this problem a little bit of like national team. Because, you know, this conundrum that Sonison and Norris bring up, I'm like, why don't we see this in the NBA? for example, you know, why isn't there all, well, the big reason is like these players, that national team there, there is a sense of pride and a career capstone of, I want to be, I want to win an Olympic gold, but, but that isn't the heartbeat of their, um, career, you know, they're, they're NBA players. And then for the national team purposes, I'm not totally sure how that works, but I kind of think that's just like the USA basketball staff and coaches goes, who do we want on the team? And they go and they go and ask them and take them. Right. Um, and, and it, similarly, if we had a professional league, you know, now basically your national team is only relevant for world championships and Olympics, which is still kind of a lot, but, but those, those staff members, so let's say Grover and Wickham are coaches for the Oslo Hornets or whatever, you know? And so most of the year they're working with a team with a bunch of different nationality athletes and they're training them and blah, 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 or what have you. And then, you know, at, at the Olympics, everyone gets together for that two week span and competes for their country. And, and basically if you're, if your red flag goes up and go, wait a minute though, what about training? What would that look like? Like who's going to write those training plans? 
like it, it would be, I suppose, in this free market society, it would be those professional teams coaches. So like, you know, and maybe this would be part of the conundrum slash draft expansion is you might have to put, give some athletes some power. Like, what team do I want to go to? What team do I think is going to help me? Training partners, blah, blah, blah. You could go that route and allow, give like autonomy to athletes. Or you could go the route of like, do, you know what? This is your coach. They signed you. You're you're under their program. Like all the other sports are, you know, football, basketball, they just have to do the training program that the Atlantic Hawks trainer gives them. I get it. It's not the same thing as a training plan for an endurance athlete. But you could make this argument, honestly, of like when Adam Thielen is in a different system that doesn't fit him, he's not as good. The same thing might happen for Clabo. If he's with some coach who doesn't know what the heck he's doing, who doesn't know how to handle that athlete, yeah, too bad, man. Like that's your career might get defined by that to some degree. Deal with it. Um, you know, I, I think they could figure it out, though. But right now, yeah, it's it's very it's very politicky because it it's this combination of criteria. Um, that is objective and subjective. So that's a little bit messy. You've got the fact that most of these athletes are becoming who they are from their clubs, the club systems and those coaches, and then hanging on to those coaches sometimes too. Um, So that can get kind of messy and, or you've got people on the outside going, what's even the point of the national team? It's not like they're writing up their training. It's like, what are they really doing? They're like, they're, they're this bona fide expert um, world cup you know, not chaperone, right? They're doing obviously more than chaperoning. That would be a ridiculous insult. But, but you know what I mean? Like they, uh, these athletes are, are outside of the national team for the majority of the year, or at least half the year, I suppose, you know, they, they are gone for a long time. Um, but yeah, you, you got, and now you got the drama with Klabo on the Norwegian side, even where he leaves the national team. But this article came out in VG talking about the fact that, well, now He's not going to get support from Olympia Toppin. And uh, it's interesting, you know, on Facebook, I, I do follow Jim Galanis, who is a listener of the show as well, four-time Olympian, smart guy. He follows skiing. He follows physiology training. He's got a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, a lot of good takes. He could he could probably start a podcast and he would get fiery, I, I'm sure. And he, he shared this story here. And there was a, a nice an interesting thread here where people are talking about this dilemma of well, these athletes are leaving the team, but now they want the support. The national team kind of needs the athletes. They're going to compete for the athletes anyway. And and uh, so people commented on, if you want to read through those that comment there, I believe it's on Jim's page. You can you can see some of them. And um, I, I don't know if I want to like try and go back and forth with some of the ideas totally that were shared. And honestly, I'm not even totally sure where I land on this issue. I definitely just need to do some more thinking, learning, watching. But you see kind of this broken down structure, I think, because it's not a natural free market enterprise. Like the fact that the the nations and the World Cup, the countries are kind of the pro teams. So I think somehow if that can be shifted where the World Cup isn't a bona fide Olympics weekend, weekend after weekend, but it's actually teams um, that are mixed nationalities – for some reason, I feel like that would actually work. It would it would at least, at a minimum, again, solve a bunch of these other problems that people are struggling with, whether it's that inequality from a ski prep side 
to that just that whole knowledge aspect uh norwegians kind of winning everything like all those things would go out the water because it's theoretically you got an expansion draft now all the best players are spread out and we care about the team component we also still care about the individual component um i don't know it works in other sports why wouldn't we be able to do it here this is like kind of one of the only things where people are competing for their country in the professional realms uh i don't know it's this it's this weird system and i i will fully admit i don't totally understand it probably a closer comparison would be looking at track and field and looking how that works and obviously in a lot of these in that those realms these athletes have like private coaches or very small club teams that they are they're training with week in and week out and then obviously competing for spots on the national team but look at track and field their their year-long system it's completely irrelevant no one cares about it there's no points chasing league end thing. Like, like the only thing that matters in track and field are athletes who ch- are chasing world records. O- the occasional diamond league that has a spicy matchup, um, global and global championships. So skiing would be it would be even worse from a fan perspective if that's where we kind of deteriorated to. I don't want to see that. So I don't think track and field is a good model for excitement for fans. On the other hand. America's amazing at track and field. So <laughs> if I guess if it, which maybe kind of proves actually the point that you can't just look at a national governing body and go, well, they're super good. So they must be doing something right. I mean, is USATF like this amazing organization? I think you would be in an extreme minority if you said yes to that. So the fact that it's the greatest track and field team on the planet is undisputable. And, and we are. But in the same thing with Norway, this Norway for skiing. But does that necessarily mean that their model that they have set up is perfect? Obviously, it does not. And we're seeing, I think, some of this drama play out. Who knows what, how it's going to play out? Clabo, um, I think someone in the story mentioned, hey, he's, he's super rich. He can do whatever he wants. He, could, he can get access to the resources that he needs, whether it's getting on a roller ski treadmill for testing or whatever. Um, so I don't think he's that concerned about it. And maybe this is all just hullabaloo for nothing. Um, and, you know, that's that's a little bit how I'm looking at it. Speaking of these private club teams, though, and one of these athletes, you know, Sophia Laukley announced now is on the Ocker Dolly squad. And perhaps Bjorn Dolly is thinking the same thing I'm thinking, where it's like, we need to move away from the national team model and have these private teams. That team has grown in size. They've been very successful. They are branching across ski classics to World Cup skiing, their Paralympic skiing, all under the team Acker. Yeah, I hope I'm saying that Acker, Acker, Acker Dolly, whatever. Those two brands, by the way, were affiliated with the Norwegian national team. One until 2015, um, Dolly was the clothing supplier uh, through 2022. So a little bit of bitterness there, I'm sure. Drama and mess and Dolly just going, yeah, screw this. Like I'm going to do what's best for the sport and what's best for young people. And that means forming this team that supports the athletes and their goals that they want to do. And obviously has the money backing it up, but it's an interesting model. And and Ski Classics has grown in its popularity too. The team element there is much more prevalent. They probably have work to do in that regard too. I think just the nature of our sport is such that we care about individual performances. That is where the stakes and storylines lie. So it's going to take some ingenuity, some creativity to make the fan base go, I really care about the Oslo Hornets or the Minneapolis Lakers. I think we could bring that team back. The Minneapolis North Stars. 
that would be, I think Minneapolis is a, is a place for sure that we could have a hub. We talked about that on a former show. Like where would these teams be based? Minneapolis, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that's an example of what kind of seeing take place in front of us of a squad doing that. Uh, a, a double pole, <laughs> the Ski Classic super fan. Sorry, almost a double pole Dave. He's got a couple monikers. Ski, Ski Classic super fan texts me. He's like, what do you think of Sophia Lockley? Ski Classics. First of all, I don't, I don't think I haven't heard that Laukley is going to compete in any ski classics. I think she probably should. Maybe she will at the end of the year. But this isn't an announcement that like she's shifting gears to double pulling full time. That's for sure. But it's interesting. I know she has the Norwegian connection, so it must have all lined up where she's like, heck, I'm gonna do kind of the Astrid Slynn plan and get over there, train with this group, because she's in Norway now. And I saw an Instagram video of her roller skiing with some of her teammates. So that would be an interesting, uh, trust me, I'd love to have her on the show. I've, I've reached out to Sophia Lockley and said, you got to come out here uh, on my show. We can talk about this. I haven't gotten a response. So I guess that says something. Maybe I'm outside of the loop, but she, it would be interesting to see like, what's your goals? What's your thoughts? What's your plans? What's the purpose of this? How, what's it like? I think it's a brilliant move on her part. Um, given the current structure, the club team is determining everything. Why wouldn't you go and surround yourself with the best athletes in the world if you could? Um, and you know, topping it all off, she, rem- she is kind of in the mold of Slynn. Those two skiers, they could be, she could follow right in that footsteps, like being ultra fit type of skier who can, if she can bridge the gap between like, I, I said this on the last show, like having the ski iron strength, combining that with her aerobic fitness and improving the technique a little bit, polishing that off. Like she's going to be a, she has a phenomenal ceiling if she can do all that. And I think the, um, the way to do it is to keep putting yourselves in, putting yourself in a position with teammates that are a lot better than you and on a daily basis. So that's what, that's going to be what she's doing over there. Um, the only worry I would see in this again is like, let's just say every American athlete decides to do that model now you're you're kind of undercutting the grassroots development of our country. You know, like cuz in an ideal world we'd like to have all those clubs over here so that we are inspiring more young kids. Like so if everyone does what Laukley does, eventually I think you would you wouldn't have any more Laukleys, you know, like because you're not going to be developing the uh, the kids and stuff that are seeing those athletes. So this is a good move an astute move, a wise and discerning move for Laukley personally. For U.S. skiing as a whole, I don't know if it's a positive move because there almost needs to be a response uh, to this. And this actually brings me to my next ski story I wanted to talk about. Um, in Faster Skier, great interview, Chad Salmella, um, uh, was it Ben Terriel, I think, ha- uh, did this interesting story there i'm just gonna pull it up here on my my link that i had uh faster faster skier see if i can find it so salmella taking over the role team berkey he he basically i think the the official role has head coach he even said himself he's viewing this a little more as hopefully becoming sort of like a program director, I think is kind of what he, he sees this as. I got an email from the uh, colonel. He was asking me, what's your thoughts on this? Is uh, As far as the announcing gig goes, is this like, is Salmella compromised here? If he's, how can he be coaching athletes also being an announcer? Personally, I don't think that should be 
in in this world uh especially the world cup something that deters but but it is interesting to bring up you you would never see like greg popovich coaching one night getting ousted in the playoffs by the lakers and then broadcasting the game the next week on the flip side that would be fascinating i would actually pay to see that so I'm kind of from a drama standpoint, inside scoop standpoint. I'm all for that. Do I think that he would um, be the type of announcer though that's going to give you give away any secrets? No, I don't think he's gonna. I don't think he would dare do that. So it might not really matter. I think he's just he'll stay close to the chest and all the the inside stuff and share what he can that he that he feels isn't going to hurt athletes or hurt the sport and you know whatever. It kind of stays in the closed loop of the small Nordic ski knit community. So, but I don't have a problem with him doing announcing and doing coaching. I think it's it's a cool fit. The thing that I think find is interesting here. There was a question later on in the or towards the end of the interview, bringing up about sort of the elite program here, and it says, um, so this is the fast year question. Zach Ketterson. Zach has been a strong advocate for Team Berkey and the idea of professional skiing while based out of the Midwest. Does it feel like he is kind of co-creator in what Team Berkey is going to look like in the future? Chad responded, the elite program as it stands is basically Zach. That's that's a pretty crazy statement because I thought this was going to be like the next way, uh, a Craspray Green Racing Project a something that could compete with you know SMS and like why isn't it? It should there's no excuse for it not to be, right? So how is it in a couple of years it's fallen off to it's just Zach? That seems crazy if that's true. I mean, I know their roster wasn't totally loaded, but it certainly had some higher level athletes. And I mean, like to me, I guess I guess I just saw Berkey, Team Berkey is being like last year or two years, whatever it started a couple years ago. That was like Bridger Ski Foundation and Newell. Like Andy Newell goes out there and goes, I'm gonna take over this program. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna grow it into something that can send people to the World Cup. You know, good collegiate skiers to the World Cup. And in he is doing that. He's literally, you know, if you look at the 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 rankings, the abilities of the athletes on Newell's team, he is doing good work out there in Bozeman, I think. Um and, and each year they're getting a little bit better. Uh, but, but if it seems if Berkey, if what Chad is saying is true, it's like, well, that seems to me like the total opposite happened then. You've got Ketterson, who's a total stud and, um, has a bright future. Is he the only guy for real rescue that ship immediately, you know? And, and of all the organizations talk about the one that you would think would have just basically an unlimited supply of funding too. Now, I, I mean, again, going back to the whole conversation with, yeah, I, I, I've already gone way off the detour here with Norris and Elena talking about cost of what it actually costs to be on the world cup. Um, some of those numbers, those figures, I think get tossed around. You hear 30 grand, 50 grand. It's like, yes, that would be if an athlete went over there in November 1st and was in a hotel every single night through March 23rd, like that never happens, you know, and flights, this or that, or what, you know, athletes who are not supported aren't doing that. Norris would have been one who had maybe been the closest to that, I suppose, because again, never getting named to the national team, but being good enough to keep earning World Cup starts, he would be the one who like would have racked up the biggest bill of anyone, I would imagine. Um but but yeah, I mean, how is the Berkey not able to support this? The Midwest is a hotbed from the high school on up, great club teams. Um, they they do have some collegiate teams. This is what I'll say though. If that statement is true, and and I'll I'll keep reading here Chad's um, answer. He said, 
He said, if he hadn't said, this is Zach, if Zach hadn't said that we should keep this going, I don't know if it would. His desire has brought us Midwesterners into focus, though. Simply, he is a good example that we are not doing all we can to support developing athletes here. If they don't have a place to ski after college, then we can't expect them to stay in the region. If Zach wants it, then others probably do, too, and we should be stepping up and doing it. Our collective commitment is the idea of an elite team in the Midwest. That is what we want to create going forward. So it sounds to me like he's on board with what I'm saying. Is like the the goal is to keep this elite, blah, blah, blah. The fact, though, that I, I still find it kind of amazing that Zach's the one who's like the only guy kind of chirping for that. Now, maybe I'm misreading that. You know, Chad is saying if he wants it, there's probably other people who do too. Yeah, no kidding. And like there's – I thought, you know, if the University of Minnesota was the equivalent to the University of Vermont – how different would this be? Probably a heck of a lot different. Or actually, a better comparison, if if being a gopher was on par with going to the University of Utah, which why shouldn't, why couldn't it be? The, the U of M is one of the largest T1 schools in the country. You know, it's like top 10 there. You got 55, 60,000 students going there. It's in a skiing hotbed area with historical, it's the Oslo of America, basically, Minneapolis. If you think about history, climate, even all that stuff, like they should have a, top flight division one ski program really there's kind of no reason for them not to and if they did i think this idea of the of a team berkey they would just automatically be ultra elite uh just one other thing wanted to bring up from this story you know um chad mentions that as far as training goes as far as day-to-day goes it looks like that is still in the in the developing in the works uh what that what it's actually going to look like but he kind of mentions you know, I don't see myself as uh, messing around with things too much. I think this is where his comment came in about wanting to be a little bit more of like a program director. So, uh, and, and this makes sense, you know, from a, it, it, it wouldn't, it'd be weird. I think you got an athlete as elite as a Zach Kedersen or whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, a new guy comes in and, and decides to be dogmatic and this is what we're going to do now. Um, but the idea that, you know, we're not going to get together as a group four or five days a week and, you know, basically everyone's just going to be wherever they are doing their own thing. Um, what's the point then? Doesn't this become just, you know, here's your jersey to wear. It says Team Berkey on it. Maybe really they do need some reinvigoration and we need to, you know, you, know, you saw the, I mentioned the video, Sophia Laukley on social media. She's training with her teammates in Norway. It's like a big group out for roller ski. Like, Maybe they really do need to go to like an old school. We're getting together four to five days a week, and 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 this is a team. This is actually a team. Like we're gonna create the team environment. Because otherwise, you know, what is the point? Um, uh, anyway, we we've talked a lot about this coming up here on the show. I've got a few other things to get to. Well, I actually, mention um, the great here comes Diggins broadcaster because we have a preposterous statement tournament that has been sent in. And it comes from an excellent show uh, on the Threshold podcast. Actually, Samel interviewing Petter Skinstead, the TV One broadcaster and ski classics athlete from Norway. A really good show. They actually talk about several of the topics we kind of brought up. I think I almost need to do an interactive response to some of the comments made by Skinstead, or um, sorry, Skins, Petter Skinstead. Um, because they're informed, they're articulate, he's articulate. And, uh, so go, go ahead and listen to that show. If you're a fan of this show, because 
you might learn something. Then you can, you can send me an email, I guess, com and say, here's what I think of this. I think it'd be cool if you uh, if you did that, if you're a listener of our show. Uh, so we'll get to that. We'll get to some preposterous statement tournaments. But I, I've drifted so far away here now from the original discussion I was talking about with the Extra Blue podcast. So we're back. Just look at us mining for material from other people's shows. Hopefully they're okay with that. Um, this other idea of how much does it actually cost to be on the World Cup? This was brought up and discussed by Elena Sonneson and David Norris. And this almost could be a preposterous statement, actually. I know this. I know that she did not mean this in, a, in any ill will, but but basically they started discussing whether or not you could make a living as a as an athlete kind of where they are trying to get on the World Cup, maybe deserving of being on the World Cup, but not actually being on the World Cup, you know, so having to go out and get sponsors, having to go out and find support. Um, and, and first of all, again, very informative podcast, go out and listen to this. I think it's great. They, they tell you a lot of inside skiing stuff. That's cool. I'm glad that they, that they did that. And also I think you do, you do start to realize these people are, they're Spartan to, to a degree in, in like when they're asking for support and getting support, it is hard for them to do. And then, and then even when they're out being skiers, it is stressful to know, like every time you buy a croissant or whatever, you're thinking yourself, like, you know, you're, you're feeling self-conscious about that versus, you know, Norris even mentioned that once he started getting his own job, he start, he sort of looked at that as like, you know, now I feel more comfortable paying for certain things or going on a vacation even if I need to, um, going to Moab to train, but also maybe to hang out. And and so that that was a, a brought him a level of comfort. And both of them also mentioned that having jobs was almost better for their skiing anyway, to kind of escape from from the ski world, you can't just bathe in that twenty four seven. And these, that, those are all topics I think I, I brought up with running and skiing too. It's like you know, you're, you're the human body just almost can't survive if it's so centrally focused on that one thing. And you know, I think Jordan Hase is is an athlete that I look at now and go, wow, just like she's so intense, very talented. But when you when you go all in too much, you know, as as happened in the North Nike Oregon project, like. She hit a peak and 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 really just almost true burnout maybe on a physical and mental level, you know, that, that we have seen with her in the last four or five years. Um, and, and, you know, I, not that I know all the details there, so maybe it's wrong, but but that's kind of like from a distance, you almost wonder if that's what that is. Um, but but the, the cost. So Sonneson mentions that when, when, when that question is kind of tossed out there, like, can you make a living? She basically says, you know, well, it depends on what you call making a living. And I kind of almost laughed out loud because then her follow-up comment to that was like, you know, if you can put food on the table and and get by, I guess. And, it's, and I was like, no, 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 that is making a living. Like, I know the, I, I get what she's saying, Basically, because then she says, you know, like, go on vacation, save for retirement. You know, I don't think that's possible, basically, which it, it isn't really. Like, if you are, if you're living, not even really knowing where your next race will be, frustrated by the fact that the criteria isn't working in your favor, wondering if you can even get enough sponsors to get a plane ticket over there. Yeah, like, you're not going to be able to be buying a 
2019 suburban you're not going to you're probably not going to want to start a family with four kids and you're definitely not going to be able to be doing all of that and saving for retirement and college and what have you down the line but at the same time putting food on the table having a place to live and getting by the three things you kind of mentioned it's like that is that is making that is a living and i think one thing that is confusing sometimes is and I'm not necessarily saying this is Elena Sonson. However, I believe she ran at Wyzetta. So those things, someone should write down a list. Things you can't say if you went to Edina, Wyzetta High School. You know, probably shouldn't uh, be talking about that because you, know, you, you, you automatically think in your mind like, well, yeah, what do you expect? Like you're not going to get, you're not going to have a, be able to pay for a two-week vacation, have a brand new car and a huge house doing this probably you know like there there will be like one or two people on the u.s ski team that can do that if they get really good and have enough sponsorship then then you definitely can do that but it's not a real viable option like being a professional athlete as a skier it is kind of like hey you want to give this a shot this is it's in other sports it's your uh you're in your prime athletically your prime years and go for it you might be living in a small apartment and you're pretty focused on your training and your nutrition and your recovery and and that is absorbing 70 to 80% of your life and and on the side you can be working another side job or or taking some graduate courses or college classes and getting ready for the next step of your life you know and if you end up developing and thriving and you ski through your 30s that probably means you were good enough to make a decent living a decent living as in what you would have made if you became like a fourth or fifth grade teacher with a master's degree. I do think that is definitely possible. You know, if you, I, I would venture to guess that Rosie Brennan is it, her like total net ink. Well, heck we could look it up on the world cup just from her race results is probably comparable to like a first year teacher salary. And that's not counting anything outside of that with if she has a side job sponsorships or anything so like i don't know that that was to me a little bit one of those like oh dear here we go make a living like because what do you expect here and again i know i don't rip into like elena's background or what she was thinking with that comment this is i i jumped on it probably way too much um so just kind of like a one of those hey i bet i could make a talking point out of it um, we should really have Elena Sonson on this show. I think it'd be kind of cool, actually. She seems like someone that would be fun to chat with. It'd be interesting to get her perspective and hear about the Berkey wins and and kind of like what it what what winning that means growing up in the Midwest compared to striving for the World Cup and kind of how those two worlds look, you know, um, because because if you're just a ski racer in America, like the Berkey is sort of everything. It's kind of that one measuring stick you can look at and and as a professional skier you know it's like it's nothing compared to the world cup but at the same time there there is every year what five or ten really world-class athletes that are there so it's not like winning it is just an absolute automatic thing i think it was a couple of months ago during the season it was when norris was coming in or norris was making the world championships i think we heard of the devin kershaw show him kind of blasting a little bit the berkey field and and that win it's like I I would I totally get again where Kershaw is coming from in terms of like the Berkey field, the depth, all that. That's nothing like a World Cup 50k at all, and even the course and, and 
all all that's required there. But at the same time, it's a major marathon race, and and thus winning it is not an easy thing to do. You know, and there's been a lot of good athletes who have gotten second or third in that in that race. So yeah, it's it's not it's still not a nothing burger or whatever you want to say. Um, but let, let's be realistic here about this making a living idea, you know, like what should these athletes expect and, and, and what is a smart thing for them to do if they're talented at 20 years old? Um, you know, what should they, what, what should they be thinking? I, I assume the re that resources are getting to them in terms of helping them to make the, a wise discerning decision for career paths and, and what to expect. But at the same time, we do see some of these athletes, kind of leaving early um from from the ski team and it's like man did we really did we really get to see them at their full potential are they kind of walking away after the u.s ski team has invested them so heavily um how fair is that to either parties the fans the people supporting them the nnfs the donations you know like i think that's frustrating for athletes so that's a little bit of a problem if you know if if NNF and donation and support from the community, the ski community is desired, then you can't be someone who comes in at 20, enjoys traveling to Europe for five, six years or less, four years, maybe gets to go to an Olympics. And then at 23 goes, you know, I, I just, I want to, I want to be, have a real life. Come on. This is, you know, how fair is this for me to be living suitcase to suitcase and not really quote making a living um, you know, I'm going to walk away, use my degree. Like, I don't think that's really fair to the fans and to the U S ski team. And I, I also have some sympathy, empathy, you know, for an athlete who decides to do that because a lot of these athletes do have great educations, a lot of intellectual talents, so like floundering around from age 24 to 30. If the best they can ever do is maybe, you know, 35th at the, in the, in a world cup race, I kind of also understand why, they would want to leave. But maybe then you need you do need some sort of restructuring, like almost like a contract, you know, <laughs> like um if you make an Olympics, you you have to commit to the next four years. You know, like if it part of part of getting nominated to the Olympic team is you're going to make skiing a profession for you like four years after that, you know, or if you know, and make that age based, you know, if you're under twenty five or something, you, we don't need like a thirty four year old Olympian on some contract through when they're 38 either it's Delvin cook situation or what have you. But yeah, I don't know. Um, interesting topics, interesting things to debate. We've we've talked a lot of skiing. We've talked a lot of serious things. How about we end this show with some preposterous statement tournament nominees? Remember I've been canvassing for this. I want a real live audio coming in. So very pleased to have three nominations, actually more like, well, four kind of four, four nominations. Three, three from the NCAA Track and Field Championships. And um, this first one, Laura Overton, uh, she is a former NCAA Track and Field competitor at Indiana University and actually a really phenomenal journalist and broadcaster, I think. And as I was, the, the, just a backstory, the, the um, running community is just as harsh, probably a lot harsher on broadcasters for running events even than the ski community is. And, um, and maybe rightly so, because 
it's a lot bigger of a venue and you've got the New York City Marathon, Boston Marathon, like the Olympics, NCAA championships, USATF championships, all these big events that like, come on guys, can't you get some people who know running up in the booth? And in production, you know, it doesn't matter if it's ESPN or NBC, you know, they often have uh, people who either know the sport but are terrible at talking, people who are terrible at talking and don't know the sport, people who are okay at talking but really don't know the sport. The, the production quality, the camera angles, the, they, they pull away from the race at the wrong time. There's just all sorts of problems, it seems like, in, in terms of producing something that's great. Now, me personally, you know, I can't say that, like, I've really been devastated by, by certain coverages. Maybe a marathon here or there where they pull away from the move or, you know, a 10K where they eliminate the move and they come back or they're focused on a lead guy running all by himself. It's like, come on, guys. But anyway, all this all this is to say is Laura is someone who clearly does her research. Like during the race, as she's bringing up the stuff that I, I joked about, actually myself doing on my own broadcast. You know, last line I talked to Coach John Anderson, and you know he was just talking about how his steeplechase guy Fernando Ortega is just such a hard worker, and he's upped his mileage from forty miles to sixty miles a week. Blah blah blah. You know, like she has these little anecdotes she throws in there. Um, and she, when she's talking too, she's clear, she's slow. She, or she's slow as in like, you know, she enunciates things. She's not whipping through stuff so fast. You can't even hear what she's saying. So she's, she's good. But, you know, sometimes if you try too hard, you can throw up some, something just too delicious. I think that's what happened here. 3K steeplechase from Austin, Texas. Let's take a listen. You know, Larry, I've always wondered what are ideal conditions for running the steeplechase? Because you can see these guys, the sweat dripping off their bodies. It's about 91 degrees down there. Are there ideals? It's grueling no matter what. I would say maybe about 60, mid-60s might be what you would consider ideal, but I don't think anything really makes it any easier when you're talking about it. And Robert, in preparation for the conditions that they would experience in Austin, a lot of teams spent time in the sauna after their workouts, half hour, hour at a time. One of the things that University of Washington did, in particular, Ed Trippis, he bundled himself up into a sauna suit and would run workouts in one of these sauna suits. It almost kind of resembles a hazmat suit if you can kind of picture people running their track workouts in that fashion. But head coach Andy Powell said they immediately felt the benefit when they got here to Austin of doing that within their training. And Ed Trippis looking incredibly strong right now as he is among the top four. Okay, there's so much to digest here because first of all, who uh, RG3 Robert Griffin the third one of the greatest athletes of all time right to be as good as a football player and hurdler as he was but he's made a transition into the booth he's brought some energy he's brought some questions and engagement and kudos to RG3 for being a sprint-based commentator who is like I'm gonna try and make these distance things interesting but it's like he's got this laundry list of questions to throw up to Lar Overton and he just goes i mean if you watch all the distance events too he's kind of like talking i he sounds like someone again who's not a distance runner asking some of these questions now that might be fine because people who are watching it and have no clue maybe do appreciate some of that education so i shouldn't rail on him too much but he kind of he kind of sets up his co-commentator for being preposterous with some of these questions like what are ideal questions so she handles that brilliantly right away but then gets into this conversation about the heat and heat acclimation um 
I think she stump she kind of stumbles over one thing by saying, imagine well, first she's like the coach from Washington. He was wearing these sauna suits. I don't think he was wearing the sauna suits right the workouts. She does say that though, but I think what she meant to say is like the athletes are running these workouts in these sauna suits. Is this actually happening? So I don't even know what's preposterous. If that is a true statement, making he was having his athletes run workouts in a sauna suit. How completely insane is it? Looks like a hazmat suit. How could they run fast doing that? Why would you do that? Uh, you know, like I I remember hearing Galen Rupp just like wearing more clothes to prepare for the Rio Olympics. Maybe it was. That makes sense. You don't have to buy a special sauna suit for this. Just tell your athletes if it's, you know, let's say it's 65, 70 degrees. You know what, guys? It's going to be it's gonna be super hot in Austin. We're going to do this interval workout tomorrow, and we're actually, I'm going to have you wear a long sleeve shirt. Like, that would have been plenty, you know, a long sleeve shirt and, like, tights. We don't need to, like, wear something that is still running capable. So the preposterous near the preposterousness gets sort of passed on to the coach and on RG3 for asking these ridiculous questions like ideal temperatures for a steeplechase as if that's different than like the 1500 or the 5k and I think it is in his mind like well there's water there so if it's if it's cold that would really stink to get in the water and someone brought up on social media like look if you're running the steeplechase and and if you're getting cold or refreshed or you know, from the actual water, you're not doing the steeplechase right. That is absolutely correct. Like, I don't think they're thinking about it like that. It's just like any other distance race. It kind of stinks to be running it when it's 100 degrees out. But yeah, I don't know. Now, the other thing, we're going to get another heat acclimation statement coming up here. So from Laura Overton, we'll kind of combine these. I wasn't sure if it was one preposterous statement or two. Here's the next clip. And as we were talking about the conditions too, the, the plan and the strategy for Montana State and the three steeplers who they brought here to Austin, they got here on Monday to get acclimated to the conditions and really has benefited Duncan Hamilton as you see him right there. Uh, okay, this is ridiculous. No, getting to a meet on Monday, competing on what would this final have been, Friday, heat acclimation. So, and he really competed in the prelims on Wednesday. So, two days later, heat acclimation. That is not, that takes eight to 10 days to, to have, you know, to get the, the blood plasma volume, all that stuff. That's like actually going to make you used to an okay running heat. So that's preposterous. And it kind of is the same thing as always the talking point at these track meets when the meets are in Albuquerque too, like it's at altitude, it's at 5,000 feet. Oh my gosh. So these athletes or these commentators will mention how athletes are showing up like two days earlier than they normally would to adapt the altitude, which is ridiculous. If you if you look at, at really altitude performance, like the best thing you could do if you're at sea level is show up as close to the competition as possible. Because you you actually are going to as when you show up at altitude, your body's starting to try to adapt to it almost immediately. And in doing that, it is actually getting tired. You're more tired by the processes your body is trying to undertake to adapt take some energy so you can either fly up right before compete you're not really gonna notice it or fly up three weeks before get the adaptations but if you'd go like four days before you're just gonna be tired as we often say the athletes from BYU NAU Adams State all those that live and train at altitude they're down here in Austin they're drowning in oxygen so what they're not going into oxygen dead nearly as early as a lot of these other athletes do they go over the water jump together Brooks really being aggressive on the shoulder oh this is another classic one so i think we have to put this up here first of all great amazing that he shouts out the adam state when i like it he knows his track and field right adam state byu nau they're all the same 
And uh, yeah, they're good at steeplechase. Yeah, they train at altitude. So yeah, maybe they are even drowning at altitude. But going into oxygen debt, if before those athletes, he said the um, the athletes at sea level are going into oxygen debt before the ones at altitude. I mean, all these athletes are insanely fit. Like that seems crazy. What if? So if you're an Adam State guy and your steeple PR is 840, and you're a kid that goes to Penn U and your PR is 820, like I'm sorry, but the kid from Penn U is going to be more comfortable running at whatever pace than the kid from Adam State is. That has nothing to do with the fact that he's from altitude. It's not like he's got some special juiced up thing. I get there's physiological adaptations that help when you train at altitude. But like ultimately, everything is just trying to, you know, working to build fitness. So whoever's the fittest athlete is the one who's going into oxygen debt the at the latest, you know, <laughs> whatever. I don't know. Like thought that was kind of an interesting comment. They make it sound like, you know, they, uh, they make it sound like we're playing the NBA and this guy who trains at altitude is now like nine and a half feet tall. Like he, because he lives at altitude, he's two feet taller than everyone else around him. So he doesn't even have to jump to touch the rim. It's like, you know, everyone still has to run the race. <laughs> we got one more. This is a great one from the NSA track and field. Uh, and it's got all the makings of a preposterous statement. It's short. It's hilarious. And it even has a reaction in real time from one of the co-color commentators. This 100 meters has taken on a life of its own around campus here. Everybody's talking about how tough it was to get in these finals, maybe even tougher than getting into a final at Olympic Games. Mm. The best part about this one is the, hmm, at the end. So, Yashi, can you play that one more time? Into a final at Olympic Games. Right there. That could win this this award. If you know anything about this type of a tournament, preposterous statement tournament, I mean, the reactions are critical from the outside as well. Now, I did want to look up, like, how preposterous is this statement actually? So I had to look up the results from the 100-meter dash uh, Courtney Lindsay took the win in 9.89 seconds. That is wicked fast. And uh, second was 9.90, third 9.91, fourth 9.97, fifth 9.97, so a tie there, sixth and seventh place, 9.98, 9.99. So seven people under 10 seconds. That's ridiculously fast. So this really actually was a very fast race. I mean, on the one hand, you could look at the preposterousness of the statement being how on earth could you say that making an NCAA final is comparable to the Olympic final? Because it really shouldn't even be comparable to the USA trials final. However, a lot of these athletes that were running are from, a couple of them are from Jamaica or the Bahamas. I'm not sure exactly, but I know they're not all Americans. This isn't like an all-American final. If it was, then it would truly be preposterous. It wouldn't even make sense. But even though there's this international presence, you still have to consider like the Olympics has the best international presence from a balance standpoint that is possible even. So the best from all the countries facing off. And uh, in the Olympic final, though, so I, I told you just there, the results from the collegiate one. In the Olympic final, the win was 9.80. Second, Fred Curley, 9.84. Andre DeGrasse gets the bronze in 9.89. Sixth place was 9.98. So like the same amount of people under 10 seconds, a little bit faster winning time. But uh, alas, there's definitely some debate over how preposterous is that statement. It just came across as right before the gun goes off, they give it to that crazy. Let's go to the skiing uh, preposterousness we have. I was hearing him say, Petroskin said it's an expert used by Norwegian TV2 for cross-country ski racing. 
Well, Americans are stuck primarily with Devin Kershaw and yours truly as podcast pundits, this side of the Atlantic in the English language. Wait, wait. Norway has a bunch of them. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? This is from the uh, Threshold podcast, Chad Summel. You got to replay that again. Well, Americans are stuck primarily with Devin Kershaw and yours truly as podcast pundits, this side of the Atlantic in the English language. Norway has a bunch of them. The, the U.S. has a bunch of them, too. Have you heard of the Cedar Skier podcast? Come on. So we get... Ajay's looking at me. She goes, there's more to this clip. Okay. Uh, Petter, like me, is one of the few to none who weigh in from a perspective of never having been a champion athlete in the sport. A thing I think we both are very aware of in the way we form our opinions and our voices, which has always felt to me like a commonality between the two of us. But Petter... Um, well... I also have, was not a champion in the sport, and I do tend to weigh in with my opinions, so I think I deserve to be thrown into the mix here. My following might be a lot smaller. Who knows? We don't really know. The data, it's not public knowledge. But yes, this is preposterous. Obviously, Pitchfork Nation must revolt. Uh, is this the public consensus that there is only the Devin Kershaw show and Threshold and that's it. These are the only two commentators in North America, English speaking in the sport. And then to top it off, Petter and Chad are the only two non-champions in the sport to comment. I, I don't know. And actually, um, as uh, Petter's, Petter's been a phenomenal skier. He's not an Olympic champion. Chad's got some pedigree. I'm really the one only, I'm the only one out here that's like totally a nobody in the ski world, right? So, I mean, if there is... Anyone who could take that, you know, crown, it's probably me. But actually, I want to replay this. I got to analyze this. Well, Americans are stuck primarily with Devin Kershaw and yours truly as podcast pundits. This side of the Atlantic in the English language. Norway yeah, okay. has a bunch of so, them. So right there, when he says, he kind of has the pause there, uh, uh, this side of the Atlantic in the English language. Maybe there's a possibility that Chad thinks, like, I'm speaking in a completely different language you know <laughs> the radical cedar skier pitchfork nation language it's possible could have been a very intentional script written out there um by the duluthian i it's possible by the way speaking of duluth duluth is the right now currently when i look at our metrics the number one um listening city of the cedar skier podcast nowhere in the world is there a higher concentration of Cedar Skier podcast listeners than Duluth, Minnesota. Minneapolis is a close second. Colorado um, is 12% of our American listeners are from Colorado. 14% are from Minnesota as of the posting of this podcast. So Colorado, you got you to gotta step it up a little bit, obviously. But Minnesota, Duluth, we love you. We love you, Duluth. Yay. That's why we're hosting our Cedar Skier podcast convention there coming up. TBD. Thank you for joining us. On this massive double episode, hopefully you made it all to all the way to the end, or or maybe you've just picked out the parts that you found to be exciting. But whatever the case, we hope that you spread the word, share the word, invite your friends to come join Pitchfork Nation and be a be part of the Gripwax Nation too. You know, Gripwax Nation, Pitchfork Nation. We want all of you. There's 90 subscribers right now on Spotify, which is pretty exciting. We're we're glad we had. Three people joined since our season four launch. It's fantastic. We also added a um, supporter of the podcast. So we now have two supporters of the podcast. It's a thrill. We're thrilled about it. 
and we would love to have more. So if you want, we might we might even get a campaign going. Ajay's been talking about a campaign, like first ten, the first for the first ten people who support the podcast. I don't know if it's going to be T-shirts or Cedar Skier mugs or some sort of training apparatus or possibly just a handwritten letter from us here at cedarskier.com to you. And we'll just start a pen pal thing. I don't know. It's it. I'll, I'll use my skills and give you a gift that you will love and cherish forever. Uh, but we're not sure. We're working on the campaign idea, but that shouldn't stop you from giving us your money and helping to support <laughs> the racing cause because those funds will get used to regrind our skis. They're still in the storage wax in my garage, and I really got to get down to Boulder somewhere and have someone take a look at them because otherwise they're going to be slow. But as for you, hopefully that's not the case, and um, we we wish you the best in this next week. We'll see you next week. We've got more shows coming. Stay tuned, um, and, and, and as always, keep on striving. Keep on skiing.